Hello and welcome to a special live preview for a movie that we have been talking about doing and maybe dreading doing for years. I am Steve Morris here with John Rocha. Hello. This is one of the great films of Hollywood, but the reason that we're doing it is because of losing Louise Fletcher a few months ago. And that led us to decide on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, we've been, as you said, Steve, we've been sitting on this one. We were wondering about it. And, you know, I think we've had some trepidation because of, you know, our own kind of journeys through mental health as we've gotten older in life and this idea of walking back into this world and exploring this very hard, rigid world and almost uncaring world towards those who are experiencing certainly higher levels of mental health issues than than we have had, um, maybe had us hesitate for a while. Uh, but Louise Fletcher's passing has motivated us to walk back in. And I tell you what, I think you all are in for a fun treat with these two episodes, these two-part episodes that we're doing on this film, because I think both of us have discovered there's much more to enjoy and savor and explore in this film than there is to be afraid of experiencing in this film. I think for for me, and I know you had a similar reaction, is mm. like watching this movie comes with dread for me because yeah. of where it goes, but then it's so rewarding and it's so much a 70s film yes you know it with its improvisational nature and the chaos of it and there's so much to interpret there and it actually has moments that are genuinely genuinely fun yes absolutely and great uh fantastic cast here most of them starting out of course this is nicholson coming into his prime but most of them starting out here with christopher lloyd danny devito so many great members of this cast here along with of course the great louise fletcher um, that you get to explore here, plus the connections and the relationships that develop within the madhouse and the symbolism within what's going on here in the madness of uh, of the uh, situations that they're all in, I think has been fun for us to explore in this uh, as well. Yeah, there's so much open to interpretation here. And if you support the show on Patreon, we have not one, but two things going on this week. The first is that John and I literally just finished recording our second ever watch along for the incredible 1933 film King Kong. Yep. And we are just about to record a short on something I know John has talked about a lot publicly, but I haven't talked about it all, which is the what I think is the finest Star Wars TV show ever made, and that is Andor. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that discussion with you for sure. And, you know, this is part of our approach to doing more for our patrons because they've been so great to support us over the years and to motivate some of you who may have been hesitant about supporting us uh, to jump onto the Patreon train as we want to keep the Cinephiles train going for as long as possible. And for those of you who are already subscribing at a certain tier to maybe motivate you to jump up a tier to keep your support going and help us create more new things that we want to do here uh, for you all as patrons of the Cinephiles. So if you want to buy or stream One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you could do it at cinephiles.net. And if you get on Patreon right now, you could be listening to John and I discuss King Kong in our watch along and discuss Andor in our latest cinephile short before coming back on Friday for part one of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, voiceover guy, and host here in San Diego, California. <laughs> <laughs> And usually I have a comment where I talk about or allude to my feelings about the movie, but 
Um, there's no way I could encapsulate it in a quick little intro. So I'm just sitting back and let's go. You know? I, I, I think the movie we're talking about today is a lot of a movie. It In many, many ways, I think it typifies when we talk about 70s filmmaking. Oh, yeah. I think this film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is right up there as what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and the reason we came to this uh, is because, once again, we have someone whose life we lost and we wanted to honor, and that is the person next to Jack Nicholson, I think, most associated with this film. And unlike Jack Nicholson, only associated with this film. Yeah. And that is its own kind of tragedy. And that is Louise Fletcher. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Louise Fletcher, Ellen Burstyn, and... Who's the actress in Private Benjamin? Eileen Brennan. Like, I kind of, yes, I connect them to those three movies. And yes, I know Ellen Burstyn did Requiem for a Dream, all these other things. But it's that movie. It's that movie that I connect her with. The Exorcist, Eileen Brennan. Again, number of things. Boom. That's it's, a sure. It's, it's uh, Private Benjamin. And here, the same thing with Louise Fletcher, who's done, he did a number of things. But this is the film where, you know, you when you start to talk about Louise Fletcher, this is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega is this movie. Yeah. Uh, she was born in 1934 in Alabama. I did not realize, and this is a term I didn't know until last year, that she is a coda. She is a child of deaf parents. Wow. Yeah, both her parents. Either. Okay. Both her parents were deaf. Both her parents taught uh, deaf students and the hard of hearing. Her father, who was religious, founded more than 40 churches for the deaf, deaf in the state wow. of Alabama. Yeah. Wow. And she started acting in the mid-50s and started getting, you know, TV work in the late 50s on Maverick and Perry Mason and stuff sure. like that. Not a huge success until she was cast cast in 1974 in the Robert Altman film Thieves Like Us. Mm -hmm. And it's that film where Milos Forman, Michael Douglas, and Saul Zantz saw her oh. that made her think of her for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right. which of course is the role it's not a, it's you can't even say it's the role she's most known for it is the role she's known for yeah right you know period yeah and uh she won the best actress oscar for it de deservedly so and then this is one of those weird things you think okay i just won best actress yeah. i i'm made my career is gonna be booming <laughs> let's go and i think this is a case where her performance is so indelible yeah and so disturbing and upsetting and unlikable that she struggled to get work for the rest of her career. That's so funny. And I feel like the same thing happened to What's-His-Face in Die Hard. The, the guy who plays the a-hole in Die Hard, Atherton, mm. William Atherton, aside from playing a-holes, this was his trajectory was moving forward with the stuff he had done before Die Hard. And then Die Hard was it. Like he played it an a-hole in Ghostbusters then did it again in Die Hard, and that was it for him. Like, it, you know, he was always going to be known for that. So, yeah, it's very interesting how that works out. Yeah. I just feel, I, and it's funny, I literally have no idea what else she's capable of because almost everything I ever saw her with, including going all the way to playing Kai Wynn in Deep Space Nine, yeah, yeah. is playing these sort of evil, manipulative <laughs> characters. <laughs> yeah. And she might have been the most fun, warm, loving. She might have been have great comedy chops. I, we don't know because she just got this is what she got, you know. Yeah, and um, her last two acting roles were in episodes of Girl Boss, which is friend of the show Kay Cannon's That's show right. that she created. So, 
you know, I'm sure Kay had a wonderful respect for Louise Fletcher and wanted to use her and was probably very honored to be able to use her um, in her series. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I hope that she didn't have trouble making ends meet, but she might very well have because Possibly. And maybe she was doing a ton of theater work. I didn't see a ton of theater work in her resume, but yeah. going, you know, even if you make, and she didn't make much money on Cuckoo's Nest. It's an independent film. Right. The only person who made good money on that is Jack. Um, and so yeah. you might think, oh, she could live the rest of her life on that. No, not necessarily. And so it's funny. It's in contrast to, we did a bunch of people like George Siegel and, um, uh, Ed Asner and a whole bunch of actors we've done lately who are these working actors who kept yeah. doing it and all different. And this is the opposite. This is yeah. someone who had an unbelievable debut and then struggled. I think. Yeah. But she also took time off to raise her kids. Like, sure. um, you know, she took some time, like 11 years apparently mm. to raise her children. So, you know, th- that happens. I, you know, we've seen occasional actresses who kind of explode but they're, you know, they want to be mothers and they have children and it's tough to get back in the mix. I think it's easier now than it was maybe back then because there's much more opportunities now. Um, and you might say, oh, yeah, well, for women who are older, sure. Yeah, sure. But there are more opportunities in terms of series, you know, all uh, original series or or, TV or uh, movies than there were, I think, back in the 1970s. But certainly back in there, I was yeah. making a big decision to take 11 years away from the game. And it could have been also because she wasn't getting consistent work. And so she's like, well, I, you know, I won't lose anything doing this. And it's what I want to do. Right. The other reason that we are doing this film is it is a Patreon pick, Uh, patron, Michael Ruggeri, who's been supporting the show just forever. uh, Pick this. And we'd love to hear why you wanted to hear us discuss one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Hi, fellow cinephiles. This is Michael Ruggeri from Sydney, Australia. I can't remember how old I was the first time I saw this movie, but it was young. My dad would generally score a movie from 1 to 10, which wasn't the rating, but how many minutes he would stay awake for. He worked long hours, and once he was on the lounge after dinner, not much kept his attention for long. That night I saw my dad last a whole movie, and saw how much a movie could affect a person. My dad was laughing, laughing in a way that adults just didn't. He laughed himself off the lounge. There's so much to love about this brilliant film, And I'll leave it to Steve and John to hold it up to the light the way they do so well. But for this cinephile, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest will always be special because it showed me something new about the power of movies and something new about my father as well. So, John. Yes. How did you come to this film? Um, I I think this is one of those films I came to when I was getting into movies. It's one of those films that people tell you, you've got to watch this movie. you got to watch this movie. And I think I remember renting it from the video store. Uh, in one of my numerous excursions to video world uh, and watching it alone in my house, my parents' house, when I was still living there uh, way back when. And um, I remember this one absolutely decimating me, you know, because it was like a rebellious thing and you were pitched just Jack Nicholson performance and whatever. So the Brad Dorif of it all, I did not see coming at all, had never had that spoiled for me. Um, I'd heard about Nurse Ratchet. I'd heard about Louise Fletcher. You know, you see the clips if you're watching, you know, movies or whatever, uh, or uh, sorry, these compilations that they do on CBS movie of the week or whatever. And so uh, that's what I was prepared for. But it was the Billy Bibbit of it all that completely knocked me on my ass. And I think I've only ever seen the movie two more times after that because it is a devastatingly emotional uh, movie for me to watch. And I have to say, this last time around, 
Uh, certainly much more difficult having come to terms with some of the mental health stuff that I've suffered through over the last few years. Uh, the movie takes on a whole nother uh, layer now or element now than it did when I first watched it way back when. So, yeah. It's it's a lot. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it was funny. Every time I've watched this film, I've had a different reaction. Mm. Um, and it was certainly no uh, different this time. I first saw it also in my parents' house. I think I was 11 or 12. Oh, wow. And I it came on like Showtime or something. And same as you, I had heard of it. I, you know, I watched the same That's Entertainments or whatever that you, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. That's all the, the, yeah. those kinds of things where I'd seen a clip or two. Right. And it's funny. We talked about we both talked about that. It was boxing movies are the first movies that made me cry, made us cry. You That's with the okay. champ and me with Rocky. Yeah. And this is a few years after those. The difference between an emotional moment uh, in Rocky. Mm-hmm. and Billy and his suicide, which, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, you know, obviously we spoil every film, but this is this moment we're talking about. One is sentimental. Yeah. One is devastating. Yeah. I had never been so devastated, I think, mm-hmm. in my young life watching a movie as I was when that happened. Yeah. And it really, really rocked me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we actually, we put out on Patreon for people to ask, uh, our patrons have the right to ask questions about some of the bigger movies we're doing. And this first one comes from Brendan Marr, who asks, did you read the book before you saw the movie or after either way? How did that affect your viewing viewing experience? Yeah, I've never read the book. It wasn't taught at our high school or in any of my theater classes that I took at Florida state. So no, I've never read the book for me. I read the book after. Uh, I read it first, maybe 10 years ago, and then I just listened to it again in preparation for this show. Mm-hmm. I will say this is one of the cases, one of the rare cases where the book and the movie are both absolutely fucking fantastic. Mm. There's, It's not like you go, oh, the movie is so much better than the book or vice versa. That is not the case. Yeah. This is a great book. Okay. And it's, it is different. And I'll talk about what some of the differences are. Yeah. Um, but no, so. I would say that seeing the movie first put faces in my mind for these characters. Although McMurphy is not exactly, I don't picture Jack exactly when reading the book. Yeah. Um, he's kind of different. I actually picture more, more like Kirk Douglas, who's the guy who wanted to play the part. Right. His son had to tell him no. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that, but, but I would also say that the insights of the book, which is narrated by chief Bromden, Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And we'll get into some of that too. Hmm. That does change the way I see the movie a little bit now because I have some of those other thoughts in my head that come from him. And both of them enhance each other. You know what I mean? It's not like one ruins the other or vice versa. Or like, right. oh, I can't believe they didn't do it. It's not like that at all. They're both really good. And speaking of the book, that's where we got to start because yeah. Ken Kesey, who wrote this book... <laughs> This is a story, and he is an important figure in all sorts of weird ways. <laughs> okay. Um, so first of all, the guy's born in 1935. He grew up in Oregon. He was apparently a super talented athlete and almost qualified for the Olympic wrestling team. Wow. Um, this is, of course, kind of according to him. Uh, he gets into the, <laughs> Stanford, so close. <laughs> the Stanford uh, writing program. This is in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, he needs to make some in- extra money. He meets this guy named Vic Lovell. And Vic Lovell is giving some money for students to participate in some medical experiments. Oh, my. So he ends up, they go to this little room, and he and a bunch of other people are handed a pill. 
and left alone in the room and they are observed with what happens when they take the pill and the pills were various different things and sometimes they were a placebo and sometimes they were a drug known as LSD. Wow! Because Vic Lovell got his money from a little organization called the CIA <laughs> and this was the MK Ultra program that you might have heard of. Wow. Where the CIA has, this is just soon after the discovery of LSD, and they're trying to see if they can use this as a weapon of war for mind control, for brainwashing. This is how LSD gets introduced into the world. And Ken Kesey is one of the key people that is going to do that. Timothy Leary worshiping at the altar of Ken Casey. <laughs> well, if you if you look at the 60s and the 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 acid flower child movement, yeah. the two poles are Timothy Leary in Har at Harvard yeah. with his very intellectual approach and Ken Kesey on the West Coast with the opposite. <laughs> and they met a couple of times apparently these guys did not get along. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um so he starts doing that and he and he describes his first experience of like, you know, he's hearing colors and yeah. the world becomes this amazing, beautiful place. And the, he has this incredible sense of calm and connectedness. And this is just, you know, obviously a hugely life changing thing. Yeah. And so he manages, I don't know if he steals it from Vic Lovell or whatever, but he gets himself a supply of acid. And uh, would you like to know what his other job is while he's in the writing program at Stanford and being experimented on by the CIA? Oh, is he a male nurse? I don't know. You're damn close. He's an orderly at a mental hospital at the, at the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital. Wow. Working the night shift. Oh, so the Scatman you know, Crothers shift. All and right. you know what he liked to do when he was working the night shift at the mental hospital? Take the LSD? Drop acid. Wow. So he's, job, he's on acid. And he would go and just talk to the patients. Sure. That he remembers <laughs> that's what he did. I, he, it's an unreliable narrator if I ever heard one. Now, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask anything about your experiences, but I will say in my experiences, and I have done some of these things, mm -hmm. the last fucking thing in the world I would want to do <laughs> was be in a mental hospital talking to patients while on acid. Yeah. No, 100%. I've, I've never done that. Um, I think my friends have uh, been very good at keeping me away from that kind of stuff because uh, when I was going through my time of taking drugs, it was a, a heck of an adventure for better or worse. Um, so, And I think they felt LSD was a, a step too far. And to be fair, I kind of agreed because I never really pushed it to try it. Uh, maybe in an enclosed room where I'm safe, I might try it one day, but uh, I, I don't necessarily feel the inclination anymore. I certainly did back in my 30s and 40s. Uh, I'm, I am definitely in the Danny Glover, I'm getting too old for this shit <laughs> <laughs> frame of life. There was a time I certainly did my experimenting, oh, as yeah. you know. Um, but, but one thing I will say for anyone who's considering going on one of these journeys, one of the most important thing is to having a good setting and a supportive yes. environment and people who care around you to guide you through what can be pretty rough, none of which is being on the night shift yeah, in a mental hospital. By the way, just so we clarify this, we are not advocating this no. in any way, shape, or form, but if you choose to do it, we're saying yes. find a way to do it safely with people around who will make sure yes. you're okay. Yeah. And so he's talking He's talking to the patients, and mm -hmm. this, is what, this is the big thought that hits him. He did not think these people were insane. He thought society had pushed them out because they didn't fit into the conventional ideas of how people should behave. Okay. Interesting. And that is a big hunk of cuckoo's nest. Yes, it is. 
is the relationship between society and how what we believe civilized behavior is yeah. and what is freedom and aberrant behavior and individuality and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, and thanks, Brendan Marr, for the question. And these are the kinds of questions that you can submit to us. We're trying to be more consistent on this for the Patreon. If you, some of you are listening who are not a member of the Patreon, you go to patreon.com slash the cinephile. See the multiple tiers that you can sign up for. And for those of you who are at a certain tier, I hope you're noticing that we're doing much more here for the Patreon to satisfy you all to make sure you get more bang for your buck. And maybe some of you might consider jumping up a tier for some of those benefits that you're getting or suggesting some tiers for us or some benefits rather that we can look at, that we can uh, make possible that'll motivate you to jump up a tier so that we can keep the show going, that you all uh, tell us how much you love, which we so appreciate and are humbled by. But yeah, I love these kinds of questions that spark these kinds of conversations within our uh, episodes, Steve. So I'm looking forward to more of these as we go forward with the cinephiles as well. Absolutely. And then as he's, you know, tripping his balls off in a <laughs> Menlo Park hospital. <laughs> he sees, I believe, a Native American patient and has a full vision. And that full vision is the story of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Really? Yeah. Of a vision. Uh, that's what he says. And mm. he writes the book in 59. It yeah. gets published in 62. This is a massive hit. Yeah. And it's a massive hit both commercially and uh, critically. And it really is. This is a great book. It gets my top recommendation. It's a, it's really, really it's a, it's a remarkable book. Okay. Um, it's banned all over the country, which of course just adds to its popularity. Yeah. Of course. As banned books frequently do. And and one of the people that got a galley, which means even before it's out in print, an early version of the book is mm -hmm. Kirk Douglas. So Kirk gets the book right. and he says, I need to act in this. This has to be a movie. I have to act in it. And so the first thing Kirk does is commission a play. Yes. He buys all the rights, commissions a play, stars in the play on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Two of the people I know are in the play are Gene Wilder as Billy Bibbit. Yeah. What a and, great choice for that and, character. And William Daniels as Harding. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it, it, it's a it's moderately successful. Okay. It's not a huge hit. I mean, it got to be a rough play to go see, frankly. Well, also, he's a bit old to play the role by the time he's doing it, right? He's like probably 50 or, yeah, late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, he's 38 in the book, right? Is it, I mean, that's what yeah. they say in the dialogue. So, yeah, I, I can play it. Yeah, correct. I mean, and what's so funny is the the what one of the differences I would say in the character from the book to the movie, yeah, is just the level of classic American masculinity mm -hmm. of McMurphy in the book. Yeah, he's just this huge, like worked as a lumberjack kind of guy. Right, right. You know, and and certainly Jack shows a lot of toughness, but he isn't. He's not exactly Kirk Douglas. You know what I no. mean? No, no, no. So the play runs, you know, five six months. And then later, and this story is just totally bizarre. I can't believe it's true. But a few months after he closes the play, Kirk Douglas for the State Department, I think, is doing a tour in Eastern Europe. I don't think he's touring with the play. Okay. And he happens to meet in Czechoslovakia this very young director who sees one of his films, is really impressed with him, mm -hmm. says, hey, you know what? I got a book I would like you to read because maybe you'd be the right director for it. I'm going to send you this book. That director is Milos Forman. Huh. 
And Milos goes, oh, my God, this big Amer-, – and he's a young guy, you know, it's early, right, early right. 60s. He's still big, himself, yeah. yeah, big American movie star. He wants to send me a book. That's great. Book never shows up. <laughs> waits and waits. Book never shows up. And then Kirk basically spends the next decade trying to get this movie made. Oh, wow. And nobody wants it. And, I mean, I can understand why a studio is not necessarily going to jump at this book. Yeah, because, I mean, we were still – kind of come into terms with the whole idea of mental health uh, i guess uh, you know in saying the treatment of the of the of the mentally impaired or whatever uh, i don't know what the term is so i don't want to offend anybody but yeah we, i guess back then it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that was necessarily on the front lines of conversation for people right it was still something you hush hush about you had you had that relative who was in a mental ward you just didn't talk about it you know and those kinds of things so to do a film where it's right out there for everybody to see, I guess we had to change as a populace, right? It wasn't until Vietnam and all the residue of that going into the seventies that we started to open up to explore the systemic ways that our society was, I don't know, kind of uh, hiding away the things they didn't want mainstream society to see. Well, and, and, and I think too, we, there's also the difference between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. Yeah, it's right. It's like exactly. the mid 60s, right. and Kirk Douglas is going to his buddies at the studio system. Right. They are not the people that want to do this, you know? And then by the early 70s, now Kirk is getting older, and then the people that are his people, they're not as powerful in the new Hollywood, yeah. you know? So I could see why the, and it's, it's just a tough, it's a tough story, you know. I think it would be fascinating to see Kirk do it in black and white. It would have been. Oh, I think yeah. it still could have worked. Completely could have worked, but I think it would have had a much more sweeping score and much more kind of poetic moment. What well, I don't know. How can I say this correctly? I think it would be slightly more cheesier. And I like that this was a bit more gritty. And not that Kirk hasn't done gritty movies. He has done gritty movies. Yeah. But this one feels like the 70s was the right place to put it you know? yeah absolutely and then i i had to i just had to update you it's not normally a thing that i would go into detail of what happened to the author of the book okay while this is going on but it's ken kesey yeah. <laughs> so he gets a big hunk of money and he uses that big hunk of money to get this big house and he forms what are known as the merry pranksters and the merry pranksters have you heard of the merry pranksters i have not this is the origin of the hippies Really, in a oh, lot of ways. Oh God. Okay. And the Merry Pranksters, and you could read all about it if you read Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. I do know that book, yeah. Yeah, and basically he gets a bunch of wackos who <laughs> comes to is him. Is that a clinical term? I believe it is, including uh, Neil Cassidy, which is the inspiration for the guy who is Dean Moriarty in uh, On the Road with Jack oh, Kerouac. Okay. This is the real guy who just is, you know, I, the fact that nobody's made a movie about Dean Moore or Dean Moore or Neil Cassidy is just crazy. Right. Um, there's uh, a person there who comes to be known as mountain girl. Allen Ginsberg is hanging around. The hell's angels are hanging around yeah. and a bunch of people that are going to become the band known as the grateful dead. Wow. And they are in the crew. Yep. And they're doing tons of acid, having crazy sex, pushing the boundaries. And then he has to drive across the, he has to go across the country because of something to do with the play yeah. of Cuckoo's Nest. And so they get an old bus, which they name further, painted all sorts of crazy colors, grab a bunch of drugs and acid. And this group grows, goes across the country, spreading joy and goodness and peace and love and art all across the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you were to read Electric Cool at Acid Test, which I did years ago, um, 
there's a lot that happens. Yeah. yeah. So that's what, that's what's going on with Ken Kesey. And in the early 70s, there's a revival of the play. And one of the people in the revival of the play is Michael Douglas's roommate. And Michael oh, Douglas's wow. roommate is okay. Danny DeVito. <laughs> okay. And that, and this time, the play really, it, it runs, apparently runs in San Francisco. I don't know if that's the Danny DeVito production, but it runs for okay. o- over a year. I mean, this is touring and running and wow. getting some attention. And so Michael Douglas, who's starring on the streets of San Francisco, mm-hmm. goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, you still interested in that Cuckoo's Nest movie? And he goes, and Kirk is just like, I've tried for a decade. No one will make it. And Michael goes, well, why don't you let me give it a try? Oh, I would love to have been in the room when that happened. Well, what oh, I think you can do better than me. Go ahead. Take the play. Well, See what happens. And the moment they don't cast dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really the moment I would like to see how that went down. Uh. <laughs> so Michael is buddies with a, a, a music executive named Saul Zance. Yeah. Fantasy Records, it's, it was the largest, you know, jazz label, independent jazz label uh, in music. And Saul Zance in 1969 had signed a little band named Credence Clearwater Revival. I think I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't begin to tell you the details of the fucked upness about what happened. But in the end. Yeah. Uh, Fantasy Records and Saul Zance ended up with all of the rights publishing and music to all of John Fogarty's and Credence's music. Oh. And they ended up with very little. And there have been lawsuits for decades about what exactly happened there. And I don't know the details. These people want to consider themselves good people, but would not have made any money if they hadn't found these artists and taken advantage of their talents. I'm always amazed by these people who want to take the rights away from these artists. I get it. Look, you gave them money, you got them into your studio, whatever, but there can be a middle ground here that yeah. y'all can meet, you know? And if you're really that good at finding artists, you'll find another one. So it's always weird to me when they want to take possession of all this. The artists created it. They, they wrote it. They sang it. They put it together. It's just always my mind blowing to me when I, when I hear about stories like that, you know, like the whole, the Michael Jackson uh, stuff, or most recently the Taylor Swift stuff that uh, Scooter Braun bought. You know, this idea of taking someone's work away from them, buying it away from them, without giving them an opportunity to to bid on it. So just crazy stuff, man. Well, and particularly when it's like young bands who don't know anything, and someone mm-hmm. comes along and says, "Sure, I'll publish your thing, and you're going to be a big star. Just sign right here." And they, you know, they're 22 years old or so. I mean, Billy Joel, I know, lost the rights to like his first yeah. several albums because yeah. I don't remember what all the. De- I mean, in general, if I know nothing else, I'm going to side with the artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are, yeah, Yeah. they're complicated situations and and there might be things on both sides, but like, I don't like artists getting screwed. How many artists you know that can walk in starting out with like a team of lawyers to look over the contract and break it all down? Lawyers cost a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, hell, I mean, I have tough with, I have tough times with that sometimes, you know, thinking about, does it make sense to hand this to a lawyer? Do I want to pay the amount per hour that they're going to charge me to take a look at this thing? It's always a, a decision. So when you're young and you're starting, well, I'm not young, but when you're starting out in something, it can be quite intimidating. And then you have a, a company come in that is going to do the things that they're going to do. So, you know, and, and I know they look at themselves in there and go, well, they should have known better. They should have had a lawyer. It's, like, it's not that easy, man. Don't, don't come on now. Well, and I mean, I'm sure you've read through the 25 page legal contract to try to find the one line where yeah. you're going to get fucked. <laughs> It's hard, you know, we're not, we're not qualified to do that. Um, so 
Michael Douglas, who, my understanding, had never produced a movie before, and Saul Zantz, who was a record executive and never produced a movie before, decide we're going to produce One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They go out to the studios. Guess what? None of them are interested. <laughs> There's Kirk. I yeah. told you. Yeah. <laughs> and so they say they're going to do it totally independently. They have no studio. They have no distributor. Um, and they go out first to a bunch of big directors. And this is what uh, Zantz and Douglas said, is that none of the directors would tell them what they wanted to do. They'd say, yeah, I want to do the movie, but they wouldn't tell them how. Interesting. And then the guy who's working on the screenplay, Lawrence Halbin, mm. says, hey, have you ever heard of this director named Milos Forman? I just saw one of his movies called The Fireman's Ball. Go check it out. So they go watch The Fireman's Ball. They love it. They have no idea that Kirk had talked to Milos a decade before in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> they call him up. He gets the book. He loves the book. He reads the play. And he comes in and just scene by scene goes over, this is how I want to make the movie, which is what they wanted. Someone who's actually collaborating and excited and has ideas. Right. And the big thing that he says, and this is really how I think he got the gig, was he says, this has to be real. It has to feel 100% real. It can't feel like a movie. And the other thing he says is he says, this is a movie about the individual against the institution. And having grown up in a communist country, that's my, my whole life. Right. Milos just said that the nurse ratchet essentially represented all of communism to him yeah. as he was kind of looking and reading through this uh, stuff. Yeah. The material. And so he gets the job. And of course, who is he going to meet after he gets the job? But the other guy involved, who is Kirk Douglas? Kirk sees him and says, according to Milos, you son of a gun. I sent you a book 10 years ago and you didn't have the common courtesy to tell me to shove it. And Milos says to him, he's like, I thought the same thing about you. You promised you were going to send me a book 10 years ago and you didn't even have the courtesy to send the book. And what ends up happening is he was living in Czechoslovakia and the book was confiscated oh. by the checklist because it was contraband. Right. They couldn't have a book like that in Czechoslovakia. You can't be, you can't be, you know, promoting individualism. Come on yeah. now. Yeah. So Kirk did send the book. Milos never did receive it. And of course, this is the moment that Michael Douglas has to go to his dad and say, you're almost 60. You can't play this part. Yeah. Kirk Douglas describes it as the biggest disappointment in his life. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Because it's the one he didn't get. Yeah. You know, of course. Because I'm sure he he wanted that Oscar, boy. He wanted that Oscar. I bet he saw it. I bet he saw it hanging there, you know. Uh, so they go out after some actors. Brando turns it down. James Kahn turns turns it down oh that's a good choice gene hackman oh wow totally wants to do it yeah he's like i love this project i want to do it and his agent talked him out of it <laughs> and, and there was a screening after they make the movie his agents at the screening who walks up to michael douglas and says gene is gonna kill me <laughs> <laughs> then Milos Forman has his heart set on Burt Reynolds. Oh, God. Wow. What an interesting. But again, at that time, Burt Reynolds was a bankable name. Burt Reynolds was a name. He'd been doing some stuff and bigger than Jack. stuff. Yeah. Bigger than Jack at this time. Yeah. Well, and like I said, the, the sort of big football playing manly right, right. guy is more Burt Reynolds than it is Jack Nicholson. It's true. And it was interesting that like they started to talk about Jack Nicholson. And what what's weird is because in my mind, his reputation is so created by Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking so much about the other movies that he had done before this. So he first sort of appears on the scene in Easy Rider. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Where he's like a lawyer or something, like yeah. more soft-spoken. Hippie lawyer type. Yeah. There's five easy pieces, obviously, which is a great role. Yeah. Carnal knowledge, in which he plays an upper-class educated guy. And which carnal knowledge is a lot of a movie that maybe someday. I might, no, no? I can't handle it. Yeah, I didn't like it. I, I, it's well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in that movie. Yeah, there is. And they're going like, can he really play like a rough and tumble, dangerous, you know, intense guy? And it's so funny thinking about that now. It's like, yeah, are you serious? <laughs> and then Hal Ashby calls up Michael Douglas and says, you should come see a screening. I've got this movie in rough cut. You should come see it. And that is the last detail. The last detail. The one Ashby is most known for. Yeah. And they see that. And that's what makes everyone go, okay, we think Jack can do it. Yeah. He reads the book. He reads the play. He says, I don't need to see the play. And Saul Zantz goes, no, no, you got to see the play. Finally gets him to the play. It's intermission. Jack Nicholson grabs Saul Zantz by his knee and says, we're going to make a fortune. <laughs> and they were negotiating over his salary at this yeah. time. And he took a big cut in pay after seeing the play to get points on the movie. Jesus. Smart. Yeah. He did that with Batman, too, in 1989. Smart man. Yeah, he's. Uh, I don't think Jack is uh, worried about money. Basically. No, you can't sit at the Lakers front row for all those years and be worried about yeah. money. Yeah. Um, and now we got to cast everyone else. And I know I'm, this is a long story of pre-production, but there's just so much. Yeah, this is going to be the first part. This is going to be a three part. <laughs> just all pre. Sorry, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to spread this out in the course of the thing, but I really couldn't figure out how to do it. So it's just being front loaded. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's um. We got to cast this ensemble and they spent six months doing this, hmm. which is they started off with like 12 groups in, in LA and 12 groups in New York and Milos is flying back and forth. Wow. And he's basically doing big group therapy session improvs with interesting LA and New York actors. And after he did it with 12 groups, now he's doing it with eight groups and then he's doing it with four groups and they're getting smaller and smaller. And he's acting, asking these actors back over and over again to do improvs in these scenes and these characters. Do you know why we go insane? Yes. Doing what we do. This is the process. It's literally a job where you have to prove yourself all the fucking time. Every single day you're doing it. It's like an office job where, you know, it's, you know, you kind of get everything squared away. You do not that office jobs aren't difficult, but you don't have the pressure to have to prove your worth at the office every single day. That's what this thing is. With this, uh, and, and you might not even get the job. You're just auditioning nope. for the job. For Most of them aren't getting the job. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you start with 24 groups and end up with one group, that's a one to 24 ratio of who got the job. I would love to know how many of our up and coming actors at that time, because there were so many great ones that are in cast by the time it's, it's cast, were in those audition sessions. That'd be so interesting to see who was involved. Well, and the one thing to point out, just to make it real, real clear, mm. these actors are not getting paid. Yeah, that's another part of this. This is free work you're showing up for over and, and there are going to be moments where Milos saw an actor do a thing and go, oh, we got to put that in the movie. But right. that doesn't mean they put that actor in the movie. That's true. Very They're true. Stealing those ideas. Happens at commercial auditions all the time. All oh, yeah. the time. Yep. The very first person in the ensemble cast is Danny DeVito. So he is uh, going back and forth. LA and New York is part of these ensembles. They finally put the group together. We're scouting locations. And one of the big things, of course, we could have shot this in L.A. on stages. 
Yeah, yeah. And everyone said no. And this is the 70s. Like, we want to be shooting. Not only do we want to shoot in a, a real location, we want to shoot in a real mental hospital. Mm. So they are scouting hospitals in Oregon. And every single hospital they went to, someone came up to them and said, that's our nurse ratchet. And pointed to someone. Wow. Sometimes it was a doctor. And sometimes it was an orderly. And sometimes it was a nurse. Mm. But they all had that person. <laughs> and it wasn't even always a bad thing but it was like this is the person that keeps the, the ship going you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah and they finally go to this one hospital where the the chief doctor and a whole bunch of the staff had read the book mm. loved the book uh, apparently the governor of oregon loved the book oh, okay and this hospital had room for about two thousand people and only had about 300 patients at the time oh and so they said you can come here and take over this whole ward and wow they shot yeah oh, well that's good luck uh, and now, I'm sorry, you're right. This is going to go on forever, but I have, I just have, I'm, I'm getting close. I'm getting close, I promise. We'll be back next week with part one. Of the <laughs> Milos, Milos isn't thrilled with uh, Lawrence Hauptman. And so Saul's answer says, well, let's get Ken Kesey to write the script. Mm. So they go to Ken Kesey, who'd been in jail multiple times and done a ton of acid at this point. And he writes a script and they, they said it was just terrible. And what Kirk Douglas says is like, what do you expect? He performed one miracle in his life. You want him to perform a second miracle? <laughs> and Ken Kesey is really pissed off because, and this yeah. is important, the central character of the book is really Chief Bromden. It is all from his perspective. Oh, it wow. is it is him observing McMurphy. It's like like it's like the the object versus the subject of the sentence is that mm -hmm. it's Chief Bromden's world looking at mcmurphy and what he's doing right, right right um and so he was like well the movie has to be narrated by chief bromden otherwise it's not my book mm -hmm. and they go it's not gonna be and there's a huge fight and he sued them and said he they owed him money and yeah wow yeah after all of that he'd still sue them for more money jesus ken kesey <laughs> this is a lot so it's, it's not one of my favorite people <laughs> don't do acid kids you're gonna end up like an asshole like ken kesey that's what happens your judgment gets impaired. Just doesn't always happen. But if wow. you do it like he did it with the Hell's Angels over and over again, yes. Yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Don't do it at the frequency that Ken Kesey did. Yes. Because this is what you might end up with. This is where we bring in Bo Goldman as the writer. And he he and um, Milos got along great. Mm -hmm. And now we bring the ensemble up to the hospital for rehearsal. Jack's not there yet. And here's what they do. The main doctor there watches all the ensemble doing rehearsals and they ask him, well, what do these guys have? And so he diagnoses what the particular problem of each of these patients is. And then he hooks them up with actual mental patients in the hospital with the same diagnosis. Oh, wow. And each of the actors shadow those patients Oof. for over a week. That's insane. And they are like rehearse half the day living in the hospital the rest of the time. Hmm. they're in the group therapy sessions with the other patients they're eating with the other patients they're hanging out with the other patients they're just patients in this fucking hospital jesus sometimes during the shoot the shoot was so long that they just slept at the hospital too <laughs> interesting okay and they're never really coming out of character yeah no no they're right of course so jack nicholson shows up because he shows up four or five days after they started rehearsing. Right, right. And he, you know, does his rehearsal with them. And then they go to lunch and all the other actors are still, he can't figure out who the patients, the real patients are at the hospital. <laughs> and so he's like, what's with it with these guys? Um, 
Jesus. Um, and this, but but the thing is, it made Jack up his game. It sounds like Jack worked. Jack Nicholson works hard on yeah. what he does. It doesn't seem like it when he's acting. Just seems like it's happening. Yeah. But that's a lot of hard work. When Louise Fletcher showed up, she acted like Nurse Ratched. When they would go eat, she would tell everyone where to sit. <laughs> Just to get into the rhythm of it all. Yeah. Yep. Well, he doesn't like to rehearse. So. Yep. And I think Luis said that he, Milos doesn't like to talk to his actors about their performances. Like, just kind of lets them create it. You know? he, he basically calls them if he doesn't think it's real. Ooh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and he would say, no stage bullshit. That was a big thing for him. Yeah. Stop acting, you know. Yeah. But he didn't tell them. It doesn't sound like he told them what to do at all. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to say one more thing and then we'll get into it, which is, I don't believe you, but go ahead. Yes. (laughs) Okay. There are two more things. Um, So, so I think if someone goes, I want to talk about serious, important issues, and therefore I'm going to make my movie about these serious, important issues. I think you're fucking doomed. Yeah. yeah, I think a movie has to be a story and the story has to be great. And if the story makes you think of things that are thematic, that's fine. Yeah. And I think this story is great. And I also think there are themes in here that you don't need to enjoy the story, but we're definitely going to talk about as we go through in terms of society and freedom and institutions and things like that. And I will say, and as you're right, I have one other thing to say. And that other thing is Vintery, Mintery, Cutery, Corn, Appleseed, and Applethorn, Wife, Briar, Limberlock, Three Geese in a Flock, One Flew East, One Flew West, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. (laughs) That is where the title is from. Nice. All right. Okay. We're 40 minutes in. All right. I got to go. Thanks all right. Good. for listening. See y'all in part two. <laughs> we start in this movie looking at the mountains, the sunrise, snow, sound of a hawk, and the credits begin. We hear that music that is just the cuckoo's nest music. The composer is Jack Nietzsche. And this was recommended by a friend. He's a guy who did some of the music on Exorcist. He was a musician. Oh, okay. Michael Douglas hears this guy's good, comes in for the first recording session, sees a guy with a saw and many glasses of water, and goes, we're doomed. (laughs) I think the music's amazing. Yeah, I like the music as well. We go into the hospital. We camera moves past these guys sleeping in the ward. And then Nurse Ratchet. Louise Fletcher arrives on the ward and we just kind of see the world. It's the calm before the storm. All of it. And then they open up one of the doors and we see this guy strapped into a bed. Yeah. Twitching, looking paranoid. That's Bansini, who's Joseph Ellick. And that's the first glimpse of kind of what this is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We see the nurses putting cups on trays with labels and pills and we hear. Medication time. Medication time. The ritual of medication time. Yeah. How does it make you feel? You know, the film is very interesting watching it this time around as an older person. Uh, And so the medication time thing for me is, um, you know, it feels like they're tenuously holding on to control. So these rituals are important to have as barriers or walls um, or parameters within this world that they all exist in. And so to me, medication time, okay, everybody's lined up. They know what they're doing. And of course you could argue if we look at the Russian route of the communist, this seems like bread line, a bread line or toilet yeah. paper line that we've heard about in communist Russia. Yeah. 
I, that's exactly what I think. There's this mm. weird, this is how you are supposed to behave. Yeah. And we create markers and rituals that you are supposed to behave within. Mm-hmm. Um, and as people are lining up right away, if you've been watching movies and TV for the last, you know, 50 years, you're seeing some faces. Yeah. That are familiar, one of which is uh, Vincent Schiavelli. Yes. One of the character actors, most recognizable character actors of the last you know 40 years. Yeah, Fast Times and the Ghost. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. And we see little bits of behavior. We see uh, Will Sampson, who's Chief Bromden, and we'll meet more later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside, car door opens, and there is Jack Nicholson. Also, the, the older, smaller guy is the guy from... 1776 who reads the letters from george washington oh yeah that's that uh, small guy who does is that, that william jewell i think yes william jewell yes yeah. he's yeah. the guy who plays uh, plays that character but yeah we we see jackson who i imagine was who we saw in the opening frames there driving down the road yeah. that car is jack in the in the back seat there yeah. and he's handcuffed and they bring him inside and we see him seeing what he sees you know yeah and one of the things Milos said was, now they had to do this for budgetary reasons too, but is that this is a normal, quote unquote, human entering into an unknown world. And we see this all through his eyes. So it made a lot of sense that Jack Nicholson was the known actor. Yeah. And all the rest of these actors are essentially unknown actors. Right, right. Because it puts us within with him, in his perspective. As the audience, yeah. And he's looking around and they unhandcuff him and take that belt off. And he just starts laughing and cackling, cheering, and then kisses one of the guards. And they walk him into the ward, and it seems real clear right from the beginning that he thinks this is going to be not fun necessarily. Right. But a thing that he can have fun with, I guess is how I'd put it. Yeah, you don't know how to take him, right? Because you don't know. Because I think in the hands of another actor, that's an overdone moment. But in that moment... There's an authenticity what Jack is doing, and and it unsettles you as the audience. You don't know how to take him. And I will say this: him coming out the way he comes out and is introduced, it's shades of High Plains Drifter, shades of that character that comes out of the West or comes out to show up in a situation. He's an outlaw because he's handcuffed. So what does this all mean? So he's coming here to mess up what had been a very tranquil right. Having him, the opening frames are. A tranquil, beautiful shot of Oregon as the car is winding through, and that's he's going to, in essence, destroy all of that with what he does. So it's a nice little setup for what he's going to do when we see him and the handcuffs come off. Well, I, I totally agree. And what's so fascinating about Jack that wouldn't be true of Kirk Douglas mm. is that Kirk Douglas, you kind of know who he is. Jack Nicholson, it's like, what part of this is McMurphy putting on a show? Yeah. What yeah. part of this is him really just who he is? And what part of this is crazy? Like, is he, yeah. you know, like w- what's happening here? <laughs> it's it's really hard to kind of figure out. There's because mostly there's so much, so many layers, you know. Um, and one of the first person he sees is Chief Bromden. God damn, boy, you're about as big as a mountain. Look like you might have played some football. And this is Will Sampson. Mm-hmm. So first of all, they had a real hard time finding this actor. I'm sure. Yeah. Because their Native Americans in general weren't that tall. Yeah. And well, so there were not that many Native American actors who were allowed to be a part of the system at the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So finally they find him and I'm going to tell you, I'll give you a little more later on how, we, how they found him. But mm. 
but uh, they, he was, uh, Will Sampson was a rodeo star. He was a forest ranger. He was a painter. His art has hung in a lot of different places. Wow. And when they finally did see him, they saw him coming off a plane and they got so excited. And then Milos went, no, but wait, can he talk? Like, can he talk? And then they said, he doesn't have to talk because the guy isn't done. It's like, oh, this is great. And they grabbed him. And they said, and first they, they said, well, let's just get him to the, to the set and see yeah. how he does. And so they had to go fly on a little plane from, I guess, Portland to Salem, mm. Oregon, and there weren't enough seats on the plane. And so Jack Nicholson sits on Will Sampson's lap <laughs> on the plane ride from Portland to Salem. That's hilarious. Isn't it? And of course, then they found out that he actually can act and that he's a very intelligent man and very yeah. soft spoken and that he was perfect for the part. Yeah. Um, and the other person we meet at this moment is someone who says, He, he, he can't, can't hear you. He's dead. Death and dumb Indian. And that is Brad Dorif. Yeah. It's his first movie. He's somebody so fucking good. He's a child, man. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And this is kind of, you know, it's going to be hard to talk about this movie. So much of this movie is improvised mm. and it's so chaotic that I can't, you know, me going through and trying to tell you everything that people said would be ridiculous. Right, but right. it's it's Jack's experience in the ward. And he's mm. looking around. He sees this guy dancing. He sees this guy that looks very strange standing against a wall. He sees this old man sitting in a wheelchair with right. a cane. He sees a bunch of guys playing cards. And this is where we meet Harding, which is William Redfield. Club lead, Jack. Uh, we see Cheswick, which is Sidney Lassick. And Cheswick, by the way, might be my favorite. Mm. Wow. And, oh, Ch- you like Cheswick. Uh, uh. Ches- Cheswick is a lot. Ha, ha, ha. That's old Charlie Cheswick's cards. And you get our first glimpse of Martini which is Danny DeVito. And if you think you know who Danny DeVito is as an actor, because you've seen all his career, but haven't seen him in this movie, it's a whole other thing. Agreed. Agreed. We see Danny DeVito's sweetness and all his little mannerisms, Cheswick's insecurity, Harding trying to control things. And and this is one of the things Milos Foreman said. He said, one of the problems when you look at an ensemble movie is they frequently cast a whole bunch of, he didn't say it this way, but you know, good looking white people. Mm-hmm. And then you can't really tell them apart. And he said it was really, really important that every single one of these characters in the ensemble was instantly recognizable and instantly differ- differentiated, both physically and in terms of their voice. Yeah, yeah. And they are. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. McMurphy comes over and looks at the cards and is trying to kind of talk to them and trying to win them over yeah 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 and one of the things he's doing is he's got his own stack of cards and those are got some dirty pictures on him oh uh you like to look at other people's cards do you yes never seen this one you know i imagine this is an act that he had did coming into prison and to work on the work farm he probably pulled an act like this in a different way than uh he does here but there's similarities. Do you know what I'm saying? Him trying to ingratiate himself, him figuring out who he can trust, who he can't trust. Uh, sh- starting with an extreme thing like the picture of naked women on on a card, on the playing cards rather, as a way to see who's going to react to it, who's not. So you know he's not he's not an unintelligent guy. He may be uh, unst- he may be uh, mentally unstable, or he may have issues going on, and certainly anger issues. Uh, but he's not dumb. And so you see he's surveilling everything initially, poking where he can poke to see the reactions, like going up on the chief and immediately, immediately, like they tell you in prison, go to the biggest guy. He's having the back and forth with the biggest guy. And then he's seeing where he can uh, um, put it, who he can put his claws into, I guess, in essence. 
I, I think that's absolutely what's going on. And there's definitely a, and I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but with prison, he wants to know the power structure. Yes. And he wants to be at the top of the power structure. Exactly. Or at least be friends with who's ever at the top. Yeah. It's funny. There's a moment in the book, which they shot and is in the deleted scenes of him coming up and saying, okay, I don't remember exactly the lines, but it's something like, all right, who's the big boss loony in this place? Yeah, there you go. And Harding says, I'm the big boss loony. And they have a little argument about it. And it's really funny in the book. And I watched the deleted scene and I can see it doesn't play quite yeah. exactly, but that's definitely what's going on. And I love that just with the dirty cars, he sort of pulls uh, Danny DeVito's character, Martini, away. Come on, Martini. Martini. Martini, will you? Will you play a club? And then Cheswick's like, Aren't you going to play Martini? Martini? I, I want to play. You, you got it. It's your lead. And then Billy peels off to go with McMurphy, and immediately we see the power structure. It's your lead. Billy? Billy, I, I want to win some cards. Get a grip on yourself, will you? Cut to him meeting with the doctor, the head of the institution. McMurphy, I'm Dr. Spivey. Dr. Spivey, what a pleasure it is to meet you. Sure. Pull up a chair, sit down, let's talk. Sure. And this is Dr. Spivey, played by Dean Brooks. Mm -hmm. The actual head of this hospital. Oh, wow. Yep. Oh, how funny. Okay. In, fa in fact, basically, all of the kind of other nurses and mm -hmm. orderlies, other than the three main orderlies who are really part of the movie, yeah. they're all just people that work at the hospital. Really? Yep. Okay. And basically, they... They, you know, Milos had the idea. What if we have this, you know, Dean Brooks, who's been very helpful? What if he plays this part? And they go, Well, can he act? And they kind of have some conversations with him. And they go, Let's give it a try. And this is where there are levels of being a great improviser. Mm -hmm. And and like if you watch an improv show, it's like the challenge is to be funny. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you've done some non-funny, just serious improvising. You know, yeah, of course. Over yeah. my years in yeah. classes and stuff, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. It's a very different skill. Then yes. uh, I know I'm watching an improv show and they're going to make me laugh. Right. Actually improvising a scene is hard. I, I used to do it a lot to develop work project with actors or you work around things and getting actors. It's one level to sort of be able to be in the scene and come up with some good lines. It's a second level. That's much more difficult to have in the back of your mind as an actor, the structure of the scene. Yes. I'm trying to go from here to there and I must hit these five points along the way. Right. That's way harder. Yeah, and you, and finding the actor who understands what the overall goal of the exercise is, which is not stroking your ego and standing exactly. out and being the person who draws the most attention to themselves, but rather flows and creates within the construct of the improv. Those are very hard to find as well. And an even higher level <laughs> is time. Because in general, oh, if you do an improv yes. like this, you know, if you're trying to get a three-minute scene – yeah. That scene could go on for 35 minutes. Right. And that actor might hit all of those points, but it might take them a while to get there. You know, it's yeah, hard yeah. to do things really quickly. This scene's entirely improvised. Wow. And it is entirely on Jack. Jack <laughs> is the person they gave him. These are all the things we need to hit. Wow. They did. It was about 16 minutes that they cut down to a six minute scene. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, that they improvised. And Jack is being fresh and new and different and doing all these totally alive feeling things. And he's keeping that scene completely on track. I mean, it's amazing what yeah, he does. Got a hell of a fish there, Doc. Yeah. Isn't that a dandy? Yeah. It's a 
About 40 pounds, ain't it? No, 32. 32. But I'll tell you, it took every bit of strength I had to hold it out there while the guy took the picture. Every damn bit. Probably um, that chain didn't help it any either. Well... You didn't weigh the chain, did you, Doc? No, I didn't weigh the chain. <laughs> and the other thing they do was they said they wrote up a full report of the R.P. McMurphy that they put in a folder just like this doctor. Like, they actually looked at the reports that this doctor would have gotten from someone being yeah. transferred from a prison. Yeah. They copied it exactly, putting in all the details to R.P. McMurphy. They told Dr. Spivey nothing about what was in it before they right. started the scene. And they came in and they just handed it to him and had him read from it, just like he would do as the doctor in the right. scene like this. What's it say there? Well, it um, said you've been belligerent. Talked when unauthorized. Been resentful in the attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. And I think it it plays real. It does. It absolutely does. And he seems like a guy that's like, he's not mean and no. he's not uh, overtly good. He's just open to having the conversation. You know, he treats him with respect. He looks over the papers. He asks him, you know, well, we're seeing this. Can you explain to me why you're here? Why do you think you're here? What do you think's hap- What do you think's happening? So he in- he has an interactive conversation with him about everything. I love Jack picking up the picture of the fish and the forty pounder. All that. it's great stuff because then you, yeah. again you don't know how to gauge what he's doing. Right? Is this something that he's trying to curry favor with this guy? Is he trying to get him to drop his guard down so he can get away with something? You don't know how to take this right, and it's very similar almost to the scene he has in. Um, the Shining, where he goes in and the dude's like yeah. showing him around. And t- the, the, the back and forth, right? He's trying to curry favor with that guy. Hey, I'm great to take this place over. I'll totally give you what you want. And the same thing's happening here to a degree where he's trying to butter up this dude, yeah, the doctor. Well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. To determine whether or not you're mentally ill. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I... Uh... Uh, fight and fuck too much. Here's a big question. Mm-hmm. Did R.P. McMurphy purposely act crazy in order to get sent here? Are you asking this at the beginning of the process, not at the end? Yes. <sighs> After having, How do you feel now? I, like, don't, what is- I think when I saw this movie when I was younger, I connected with McMurphy more. I think seeing it now older, I find him to be a dangerous person. So... I don't I think I agree with when they have the conversation after he's taken them on the fishing boat and all the psychiatrists are in the room. I don't think he's crazy, but I think he's absolutely dangerous. Yeah, I don't think he's uh, uh, sorry, I don't think he's mentally unstable. I don't want to use incorrect terms or offensive terms. I don't think he's I don't think he's mentally stable or unstable rather. What do I think? Yes, I think he's mentally unstable. No. Fuck. Um it's tough actually. Yeah, I guess I, I would look- say that. Let, let me let me let me put let me tell you my thoughts God just damn at it. this moment. <laughs> I wasn't so expecting it. Yeah. If you had asked me this when I was 12 or 13 when I first saw this movie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought this was a movie about a guy who pretended to be crazy in order to get out of prison. Yeah. Got put here with all the crazy people yeah. and then tragedy ensued. Right. Right. I don't think that now. Okay. The first thing is that and I think both in the late 50s when Ken Kesey wrote the book and probably in the mid-70s, people really thought there was this binary thing of people – there are crazy people yeah. and there are not crazy people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to this very complicated scale in which 
all of us see the world slightly differently and have behaviors that are don't fit in in various ways. And, so, and sometimes those behaviors can be dangerous or difficult or, yeah. you know, antisocial in some way. But there's no hard lines. Yeah. So, like, I think, I mean, how many people do we know who have done shit where you went, oh, that was kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, yeah. basically all of them, mm-hmm. you know, all of them have weird and, and these can be totally productive members of society in all sorts of ways who do a thing that's like, why the fuck did you do that or yeah. say that or not understand this, you know, all sorts of things. I think McMurphy is a normal person. You know what I mean? Not normal. How do I put it? Yeah, now I'm doing struggling. Your time, your turn. <laughs> is that I think McMurphy fits into the, if he was on some job, like he, like in the book, I know it talk about that he served in the military. I don't know if he does in the movie. Mm-hmm. If he was on in, in his military unit, he would be one of the guys. That doesn't mean he wouldn't act crazy sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and the other question is, does he act more crazy here because of the yes. restrictive environment, right? So that's the question you have. But clearly, he's got a record of losing his temper, as the guy was talking about, attacking people. You've got at least five arrests for assault. Yeah. What can you tell me about that? Five fights, huh? Rocky Marciano's got 40 and he's a millionaire. The, the crass way he speaks about the 15-year-old girl... She might have been 15. Would you get that little red beaver right up there in front of you? I don't think it's crazy at all. I don't think you do either. Uh, which carries even more weight now as we've you know become more aware of that kind of idea of a grooming and, and taking advantage of young women in that way. And so certainly he's not a good guy. I would say that. He's not a good guy. To me, he's a, he's a difficult pro- uh, protagonist in this film um, because you have to ask yourself, what is his end goal here? in the things that he's doing because he does mistreat his fellow inmates at times throughout this process, especially if he doesn't get what he wants. Yep. You know, he insults them into raising their hands about the world series. He insults them about these things, but does he take him out on the, on the boat? Sure. But all, but also it's because he wants to have sex. So there's ulterior motives. So he is not a, a um, noble protagonist, in any way, shape, or form, that expo- that he's going to expose how they mistreat mental health people. He's a very uncomfortable protagonist uh, in this movie, um, uh, but that doesn't mean the antagonist is any less villainous, so to speak. I think, yes. A, yes. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. <laughs> B, I don't think he's a normal person. I can't go that far with you. Well, I, well, I guess I, the reason I say that, and I think you're, I, I agree with you, that, and I'm glad you pushed back on it, is but I think my point is more that all of us are crazy. And so in that sense, so is he. You know? In the broader usage of the word, uh, yes, I guess you can say that. Yeah, well, all of us are all of us have things that people looked at it from a certain angle might think it's crazy or, or weird or different or uncommon. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where you would be. I've never seen you do a crazy thing in my life. So I don't know if I could well, put you in that camp. It's because it's all on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a separate conversation for sure. I, I think if you were to have some conversations with Karen, she could, she could lay some of it out for you. Um, I, I think um, uh, I know I'm, I'm crazy. I just am crazy. I, I think I'm crazy in an extremely socially responsible way. Okay. Okay. Fair but enough. But there are a lot of things that I'm, that are 
weird about me. <laughs> the weird is not crazy, but I well, okay, well, well, but again, it goes to that binary of crazy versus not crazy, as opposed to how do we all not fit in or behave in the way that we are quote unquote supposed to. Right. Um, I think McMurphy is always out for McMurphy. And oh. I, and, and did he consciously work an angle to get into this place? My gut is that always that he kind of did is that he was working mm. angles to get out of work. Yeah. I bet if he did serve in the military, you know, it's like Klinger going for the section eight in mash. Yeah. Is someone working an angle because they don't want to be where they want to be. Right. Right. Good you point. know what I mean? Yep. But the degree to which he, you know, he is actually an aberrant person is kind of, it's not what I'm going to resolve. Right. Um, the other thing in talking, and this is look, the way he talks about this 15 year old is, uh, obviously today, fairly terrible. I mean, obviously terrible, not fairly terrible. Yeah. I mean, and I, yeah. I would imagine he was terrible even back then. We just weren't more aware of it as a society because, you know, most of the films we made were films that focus from the male point of view. So, yeah. Um, and, and this is, you know, men talk like this. Yes. Um, exactly. and this is one of the themes of this movie and I, I'm not trying to put this out to put a judgment on the theme, okay. but I do think it's a theme to point out is one of the themes of the movie is maleness in relationship to femaleness and the idea of the castrating woman taking away a man's power. Yeah. And I think that's what watching the film now in 2022 after, um, you know, the Me Too movement, after hearing some of the conversations from um, uh, women who have spoken about how they viewed our media, how they viewed certain films, it was really interesting to watch this film again through those eyes and see his antagonistic actions towards, you could, there is a prism to look at this film where Nurse Ratchet is not necessarily villainous. There is a prism to look at. I know some of you probably are throwing your uh, iPods or whatever you're listening to this on at the wall right now and are, are saying, oh, here goes Roko with one of his crazy hot takes. No, it's true. You look at this situation. He comes in. She has a very uh, regimented operation here. Yes, she's in charge of all male prisoner, all male, sorry, all male um, patients. And uh, she has a female nurse with her. She has four or five orderlies there, which is interesting. They're all black. If you were to do it now, oh, I bet no, they all be a- Latino. So yeah. there, there's you can take symbolism from that for sure. Oh, there is, I think. Uh, yeah, and so you've got that situation set up. But you could also look at the fact that Murphy comes in with a little bit of privilege, thinking he's the one that's going to take this. Oh, the white dude coming in, I'm going to take over this whole ward. I'm going to do my thing, and uh, you know, I don't care what anybody says. And a woman in charge. Oh, you just wait one week. I'll have a bug up her ass so big. So there's a prism to look at this, where this is a sexism. Uh, uh, point of view. And look, he sneaks out. Why does he sneak out? So you can have sex with his girl on the boat. And there's, a, I'm just using her for sex, not for conversation, not because I miss her, not because I love her, but because I have sex. I just want to have sex with her. What does he tell the doctor? I just want to, uh, oh, I guess I fight and fuck too much. Let me, it's all bragging about my libido. So there are ways to look at this where he's not a good protagonist or not a good guy in any way, shape or form and could very well be a misogynist. So just throwing that out there, and some of you may be upset and not come back for part two, but just saying that right off the bat, watching it now in 2022. What what I'll say is that, you know, the world was more misogynist in both in 1959 sure. when it was made and when the book was written in 1975 when mm-hmm. the movie was made. Mm-hmm. That's reality, and I think McMurphy reflects that. Yeah. I also think 
you know, there's this term called the, the Madonna horror complex. Yes. Right. You know, is that this movie is a perfect example is that there is nurse ratchet yeah. who is non-sexual and controlling and scary. Yes. And then all the other women in the film and they're the other nurses, of course, but yeah. they are totally non-characters except for being sexual objects who are totally open to sex. Yeah, but I would disagree. And, and I would disagree with you a little bit on nurse ratchet. I think there is a bit of, sexuality in her. And I don't know if Louise Fletcher's ever spoken about this, but watching it this time, there's a little element of it bubbling occasionally. Something mm. about the what she does with her mouth. Because uh, Milos uses a lot of close-ups in this movie. Yeah. So you can read a lot of emotions going on in an actor's face. And I think there's a little there's a reason she doesn't want Murphy, McMurphy taken away from her. There's a there's something about there's an element of sexuality. That's all I'm going to say. And, uh, and I'll bring it up when we hit those scenes in the film. But I think there is a little bit of her wanting to control men. I don't think about castrating. I think more about this power she might have. Because how often do women have power over men in society back then or now? You know. Well, the power to control. Well, and this is the other because for Milos on a lot of levels, Nurse Ratchet is the state. Right. You know, which is the other one of the many other themes to discuss and the state's desire to control freedom, to control people. And so the use of power to control and and, and the reason that it was important to bring all this up here, even though, you know, again, we're we're crawling through the film, but (laughs) is that his explanation of this 15 year old is that you wouldn't be able to resist her either. Is that if it's crazy to be attracted to this 15 year old who loves sex, then I guess I'm crazy. No man alive would resist that, and that's why I got in the jail to begin with. And now they're telling me I'm crazy over here because I don't sit there like a goddamn vegetable. Don't make a bit of sense to me. If that's what being crazy is, then I'm senseless, out of it, gone down the road, wacko. But no more, no less. And the doctor takes all this in, and he asks, Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? And Jack with that great, this is only Jack can do this this way. Not a thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. And then the Dr. Spivey lays out what the deal is. We're going to study you. Mm-hmm. We'll make our determinations as to what uh, we're going to do. And Doc, let me just tell you this. I'm here to cooperate with you 100%. Because I think we ought to get to the bottom of that. R.P. McMurphy. <laughs> and we cut from there to our first group therapy sessions. Yeah. Yeah. These are the heart of the movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We come back to them multiple times mm-hmm. to show us the status, the changing status of what's going on with everyone and Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. And here is what Milos, how he approached them. And this is, strangely enough, way back in the beginning of the Cinephiles, one of our earliest movies is Amadeus with Milos Forman, and he did the same technique in Amadeus. And now I know, oh, this is where you can really see it, which is instead of just having one camera going, instead of just having two cameras going, he frequently had three cameras going, which uh, is a huge pain in the ass for the DP because it makes lighting really, really difficult. Yeah. The first DP is Haskell Wexford, um, who gets fired halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because of this, but what he did was he was shooting the person who's talking and he's maybe shooting the person they're talking to, but then he has a third camera operator and the third camera operator's job 
is just to rove around and look at whatever they want to, whoever's interesting. Which means, and think about this, John, for you on set, you're acting, you have no dialogue at this moment, but you know that at any moment, one of this one camera might be looking at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not necessarily off camera. Yeah. How does that affect what you're doing? I I think you got to stay in character. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, all that's happening there. You've got to stay dialed into the scene. So even if the camera's not on you, you want to stay dialed into the scene. So you're helping the other actors who are on camera stay in the scene, right? It meant they never got to leave character. They never got yeah. to phone it in, you know? They never got to, you know, because sometimes you're doing, you know, an ensemble scene and you're off camera. You're just kind of waiting, you know? Yeah but, yeah, but, well, yeah, true. But if something like this, I think uh, the actors would be, you know, it's so funny because you talked about the process earlier, twelve, you know, from 12 groups to eight groups. So they worked hard to earn this part and they were conditioned to yep. see, because Milos in a way is maybe a little bit oblivious that he's a little bit like Nurse Ratchet, creating <laughs> yeah. these groups where they're all um, improvising with each other. And so they're creating this community and connection with each other, but he's the one that runs the set, controls the situation. You all have to stay in character in it, or I'm gonna or I'm gonna keep you in character by doing it this way. So in a way, Milos was the nurse ratchet of that of that set by doing it that way. So you stay in character. That being said, though, most, if not all, those actors probably loved the ability to just escape into this the whole time play within this world because that's what acting is is playing and stay in character feeding off other people who are doing the same thing and not judging them for doing it there's a gift in that uh, as an actor that you are, you are surrounded by other people who are dialed in as much as you are well and, and uh, absolutely and don't forget the fact that these actors have been living in this hospital mm. shadowing actual patients to their actual therapy sessions yeah, yeah, yeah. and so that they are dialed in to who these people are. And if you watch, they're just cut to Danny DeVito, cut to Christopher Lloyd, who we haven't even talked about yet, yeah. you know, cut to all these actors and they're in it. You know, they're just behaving. You, there's everything they're doing is so interesting. Yeah. And this is the world that McMurphy still dressed in his street clothes, walks into all of these characters. All right, gentlemen, let's begin. At the close of Friday's meeting, we were discussing Mr. Harding's problem concerning his wife. Even the way she says that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is fucked up and passive aggressive, <laughs> you know? And it's hard to say the, the the great thing about being passive aggressive, John. Yes. Is that when it's done really well, mm-hmm. it's very subtle. Yeah, it is. And hard to argue with, you know? Like You won't get mad at it because it's so damn subtle. Yeah. By, by the way, I also want to take, just take a moment. I, I, in fact, every single thing about Nurse Ratchet, her stockings, her shoes, her clothes, that hat she wears, and in yeah. particular, the shape of her hair that creates that like V going down to the side oh, yeah. of her forehead. Everything is so severe and pristine and perfect. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Mr. Harding stated that his wife made him uneasy because she drew stares from men on the street. Is that correct, Mr. Harding? Yes. Uh, yes. That's correct. What? What's wrong with the way Nurse Ratchet is doing this? I don't know. I'm not a th- trained therapist. Um, and what was our what was our therapy tactics like back then? I don't know. But she's trying to get him to 
talk about this stuff that it doesn't want to talk to or talk about, which is what what's his face brings up in just a little bit. So yeah, that's what strikes me. You know, you know. Here's I, it would be interesting to have like a, a a historian of evolutions in therapy, you know, yeah. to discuss these issues. But so much of what Nurse Ratchet does is about taking away self esteem from the patients. It's about yeah. breaking them down, not building them up. Right, 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 right. It's all Keep about them coming back, everyone. almost like you could argue, and exposing them to the group. You yes. Know? And recidivism is important. And when you find out that a majority of them are voluntary, yeah, that is really interesting because you can even look at the symbolism of that, wanting to create this desire that you are not well, you're constantly not well, so therefore you constantly stay in the situation. And I imagine voluntary means they're paying the hospital for themselves yeah. to be in there. So, yeah. Well, and – it's like she wants them to participate in their own, right? you know, reduction. He also thinks he may have given her reason to seek sexual attention elsewhere, but he wasn't able to say how. That is so like, he also thinks he might be less than a man. Isn't that correct, Mr. Harding? Isn't that how you feel? You might be less than a man. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much of that that's happening here. So, does anyone care to touch on this further? So now she said, Harding... You think you're essentially not enough of a man for your wife, and you think your wife is seeking other people. Now she goes and asks all the other men in the room, does anyone else want to talk about how Harding is inadequate? (laughs) That's basically what she's doing. Yeah, kind of, yeah. You know? Do any other men want to chime in on his sexual prowess? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is a way to emasculate a man, for sure. Well, this is why this idea of masculinity is central to this, is one of the, again, I want to say it one more time, which is that, this is a great story. We yeah. don't have to indulge in themes of inst- the institutions or civilization or masculinity in order to be moved by the story. Right. You don't have to dial into any of yeah. the symbolism or the meanings or the message of the movie to just enjoy the movie flat out. Yeah, good point. But one of the theme- themes of this film is what is it to be a man based on this particular yeah. era and time, you know? Mr. Scanlon, would you begin today? No one wants to talk. Everyone's reluctant. Billy, how about you? No, 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 ma'am. I'd like to write in my book that you began the meeting. They don't want to say anything. She pushes Billy. She pushes Martini. And, of course, the center of all this isn't Harding and Nurse Ratchet. The center of all this is R.P. McMurphy, who is observing the room. Like I said, he's wise looking around. He's surveying. He knows, finding his angles. We cut. She asks Mr. Cheswick. Me? Yes. The amount of stuff he goes through yeah. when he's put on the spot, he's intensely uncomfortable. Yeah. And she says, and again, this goes to the same point. You mean there's not a man here who has an opinion on this matter? At one point, so as they're acting, uh, I, I think I already said, is that Milos would call bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would, if he didn't think that it was real, he would call bullshit. He says, you're giving me that stage bullshit. He says, you can't, he, and Milos would say, you can't do that for the camera. The camera knows you're lying. Um, so one of the actors comes up to Saul's dance. He's, he's bright red. Mm. He's obviously upset. And Saul's like, oh, shit. You know, he's upset at Milos. And the actor says, I could kill him. I could just kill him. And then the actor says, and then I realized he was right. <laughs> he said, the, that actor said, I was thinking of acting. It's a real, it's a real lesson. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
You can't think about acting when you're acting. Yeah, exactly. That's a weird... I mean, when you're plumbing, you can think about plumbing. <laughs> Hello. If you're programming a computer, you can think about programming a computer. <laughs> there are very few jobs you can't think about doing them when you're doing them. Mr. Harding, you've stated on more than one occasion that you suspected your wife of seeing other men. Oh, yes. And then Harding starts to say his truth. The very existence of my life with or without my wife in, in, in terms of the human relationships, the juxtaposition of one person to another, the form and the content. And at this moment, the camera pushes in on Chris Lloyd, which is mm -hmm. uh, Tabor. And it's, you know, again, if you know him from Doc Brown, yeah, this is a different guy. <laughs> yeah, he's aggressive. He's angry. Hardy, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? So this is obviously a, con you know immediately, this is a conflict that's gone on a long time. Yeah, yeah, between them, sure. This is the point, Tabor. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Finally! When I'm watching it this time around, <laughs> he strikes me harding or hard on, as uh, 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 McMurphy likes to call him. He strikes me as a uh, film critic or a writer who I feel like they're taking shots at film critics with this stuff or intelligentsia, yeah. you know, because uh, they're like, oh, because homie's like, Tabor's like, just get to the fucking point. And he's like, I am getting to the point. I'm talking about this and this and this and overinflated and all of this kind of stuff. And um, Tabor's just trying to call him out on his bullshit. It's almost like what we're seeing nowadays the fans versus the critics, that whole narrative that people have been pushing for the last few years. It, Tabor is the fans and Harding is the, are the critics. And that's the narrative that people have created and stereotypes of both of those sides of things. And so you're seeing that kind of play out in this way between them. So I wonder if that was intentional because people have hated critics since the dawn of time, Steve. So I wonder if this is somewhat of a shot at that. I think because Harding is using, you know, 10 cent words constantly to show that he's more intelligent than everybody else around him, yet he's still in the same place that they are in. So, you know. Well, I, I think, I mean, again, because this is a movie on, in some ways about masculinity is that he is the intellectual and the intellectual is out of touch with the, the physical, with the human, with the emotional. Yeah, And so Tabor is going, come on, stop the bullshit. Tell me what's really going on. This is all just crap. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I am not Harding, but you asked earlier about the Steve crazy. It's more in that direction of, I will come up with a very articulate explanation of things rather than emotionally being connected to what the fuck is going on in that moment. It makes me feel very oh. peculiar, very peculiar when you throw in peculiar. something like that. Why? What does that mean? And the other thing too is the implication is, and again, this is, you know, 1959, 1975 is that Harding may or may not be gay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so it comes up. Yeah. And again, this deals with masculinity and issues like that. Say, so what are you trying to say? Trying to say I'm queer? Is that it? No, little Marianne? Little Marjorie Jane? On the street? Huh? Is that it? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Is that your idea of communicating something to me? Is it? And yeah, another thing they bring up, Steve, is they there's an illusion by Harding that he thinks they're implying that he's homosexual or that he's gay. And he 
slides into the stereotypical tropes by using, you know, fe- female names and doing little actions with his hands yeah. to imply that he's somehow, you know, half feminine, so therefore gay, uh, which is really, you know, for an, to see someone intellectual immediately revert back to unintellectual stereotypes of the sexuality of someone in order to play out these uh, masculine issues that are happening here um, in front of other men, that's, that happens all the time. Intelligent or not, people revert to that kind of stuff to kind of combat the illusion. Because I imagine at the time, and still in some quarters in our world, people connect homosexuality or, or gayness as weakness, you know, less manual, less manly, less masculine, which yeah. nothing could be further from the truth as I've seen plenty of, and know plenty of uh, gay men and gay women who are uh, and all, all across the spectrum of LGBTQ community who are quite strong, quite uh, tough to handle the world. And many straight people I've met are not. And so it's just, there's that whole thing going, playing out in a way as you're watching this scene. I mean, th- this is the thing is that I think what we know today or hopefully are beginning to know is that you could be all over the place. Yep. You could be gay and sh- or straight or whatever it is. And that doesn't necessarily have a one-to-one relationship with some other thing. But you're right. At the time, intellectual being in men, men were supposed to be manually and physical and intellectualism was considered more feminine. And therefore, if you're being intellectual, that must mean you're gay and not therefore not much of a man. Which is, of course, born from the insecurity of people who are not intelligent or not right. that smart. And so- they're made to feel inadequate themselves intellectually. So how do you combat that? You create a narrative that the person who is clearly smarter than you and can combat you intellectually must be deficient in a masculine way, so therefore must be homosexual. I connect homosexuality with being less than, and that is the way I get back at that kind of person, which is, of course, has always been hogwash, utter, utter hogwash, and it's derived from people who are unconfident about their intelligence. But it is also why, while we could be critical of certain things that are happening in this scene, yeah. why I think this is a great scene. Oh, 100%. Because, because Tabor is definitely, you know, and, and some of the other guys are doing exactly the things you're saying, which is cutting down Harding because he doesn't represent a certain kind of masculine thing that they right. think is right. But... They are also right that Harding is using his intellectual bullshit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to stay away from actually dealing with the issue that they're trying to deal with. And to convey that he's better than them. Yes, absolutely. He is a superior son of a bitch and is doing that. Yeah. And the other thing that is going on is that Cheswick, who, like I said, is emerging like my favorite character. He is defending Harding. I want to tell you guys something. You just don't want to learn anything. You just don't want to listen to anybody. He's got intelligence. And that's what's important to Cheswick. Is, is, and part of it, I think, is that Cheswick gloms on to where the power is. Yes. And at this moment, the power is to some degree with Harding. And Harding doesn't even want his defense. No. But Cheswick, I, well, do me a favor. Huh? Take it easy. And stay off my side. So for me, what I'm seeing are two political parties raging at each other, and there's the mainstream or the mo- in the middle who is saying, "I don't want the stop, you know, stop," and then tries to defend one of the parties from what he thinks is ganging up on, and that party doesn't even want him to defend. Them. Yep. So it's very interesting to watch this dynamic all play out. But I only want to, I only want to, I only want to help you. I understand. But don't you want me to? 
Please. But I only want to... Please. But I only want to help you. Please. Because Cheswick is, comes off a little bit like he's doesn't have a spine, but the truth is he's just wanting to feel strength. And so he um, takes the strength or co-ops the strength, I guess, yeah. that Harding has for himself or he thinks Harding has for himself. And so he doesn't mind uh, being um, talked down to if he can still have access to that strength. Because later he glom- gloms on to McMurphy like crazy so much so that when he's being dragged in there to be electrified, he is screaming McMurphy's name the whole time to help him. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. The, the, what's so amazing about this is that McMurphy's the main character. Yeah. Nurse Ratchet is the main antagonist. And in this, for the most of this scene, neither of them are doing anything. They're just yeah. observing everything that's going on in the ensemble. And the ensemble is so filled with fucking life. Yeah. yeah. They're just, every one of them is such a fully realized character. Yeah. And this arguments continue and it continues to escalate and they're screaming and it gets louder. And then Bensini gets up and starts walking around saying, I'm tired. This scene represents our political discourse now. <laughs> it really is. A lot of people walking away going, I'm tired. Other people just screaming, going, please stop. I don't want to hear it anymore. And two sides just raging at each other, man. It's, um, it's, it's, there's symbolism there for days. And, and, as, and it's just total chaos. And in the center in the chaos, at the eye of the storm of the chaos, is Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. And R.P. McMurphy watching her. And her watching him. Oh, yeah. There is that thing. She, I think she knows, how can I say this? I think she has read his file. Mm. I think she has, like, I think she senses this is a formidable foe. Because I think she's also, she's bored. She's controlling. She's in control. Nothing has threatened her. She has orally. She has her nurse, her dutiful nurse, who barely has a line in the movie. And so she is in control. So, but she wants a challenge. Authority sometimes likes a challenge so they can still show how strong they are. And so I think she has mapped out McMurphy before he even shows up so that this whole thing, she lets them rage at each other. This is probably the first time she's let them rage like this for this extended amount of time in a long time, but it's in a way to kind of show McMurphy what he's really in here with and also to show that she could shut this down at any time if she wanted to, but she's not. It's it's interesting games that are being played. here. It is so, I find it so unknowable. What was she trying to do and was this what she wanted is really, really hard to see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, by the way, at the end of the first shoot, and they shot this mostly in order. At the mm. end of the first group therapy shoot, Michael Douglas felt, we got a movie. <laughs> he said, he basically said, everyone was great all yeah. the time. He said, there were no bad takes. It was, there was just choices. That's a strong statement. We're outside and we he- see that there's a school bus and some of the people apparently are not restricted and they can go off on a trip yeah. and we're playing basketball. And he goes over to talk to the chief. You ever play this game, chief? And in this scene, he is trying to get the chief who's super tall to yeah. shoot a basket. Yeah. Hands in the ball, nothing. Shows him, brings him the basket, nothing. <laughs> All right, now uh, raise up your arms. Raise the ball up in the air, chief. Raise it up. McMurphy, what the hell are you talking to him for? He can't hear a fucking thing. Why is he trying to do this? It's a good question. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe he's, he sees this guy as a strong dude. If I would say, if I believe he has more nefarious intentions, it is, if I can get this guy on my side, no one's going to mess with me and I'll have power in the situation having a, a bruiser here as my second in command. The other side of it is, I don't know. I think he's just kind of seeing what his limits are in this situation and what he can do. And maybe in a way it's messing with Nurse Ratchet to reach someone that seems that was pitched to him as unreachable. I don't know. There's many reasons in my mind for what he's doing, what he's doing. What do you think he's doing? So the first thought I have, and it's it's not knowable, but I don't think McMurphy is Machiavellian. I don't think mm. he's walking around with a plan. Like I'm I think he is more reactionary mm. in the moment. I, I mean, I think he plans a little bit. Yeah. But I think he follows his interests more. You know what I mean? Without thinking. Yeah. Without, is that true. he goes, oh, here's this tall guy. I wonder if I can, I wonder if he could shoot a basket. I wonder if I can get him to shoot a basket. Right, right. And maybe there's some sort of, hey, we have pickup games and it'd be good to have the chief on my team thoughts. Right. I don't think he's feeling physically threatened like I need the big guy on my team, at, you know, in terms of to protect myself. I don't. I, that doesn't seem like a thought, the right thought for me. But, okay. but I think he's just play. I think he likes to play. Yeah. And he likes to play with people and people are boundaries, maybe with people. Absolutely. Well, and to see, well, what will happen if I do this and what will right, happen if I do right, this? Right. Right. You know? So like yeah, I think, the, just like kissing the cop or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And, and I, it's not like kissing the cop was part of a plan right. in order to get right. this thing. Right. Right. He's just sort of in this moment. Oh, what will happen here? Yeah. So he's doing this. He's not getting anywhere with the chief. So he has him stay. And then he goes over and finds Bansini, his big guy, hmm. backs him up to the bench, gets on his shoulders, and then, much like riding a horse, brings him back over to the chief. Hit me, chief! I got the moves! I got him, chief! How are you feeling watching this sequence? Uh, I think it's fun, you know. I do be like, well, you're violating his personal space, you're doing things you're doing but this is a you know this is a un, this is a weird world so within the weird world and construct i think it's kind of cool well, fun what he's doing not cool maybe but fun uh and seeing if he can get through to him so yeah well this is one of the weird things about the movie and it was much more the last time that i watched it not this mm -hmm. most recent time there are parts of the movie that are just fun yes oh the fishing trip is fun Fishy Trip is really fun. Yeah. Murphy uh, um, faking the World Series game. That's fun. There are a yeah. lot of fun moments in the movie, which is why the tragedy moments carry so much weight when yeah. they happen. And so him getting Mancini over and bouncing on him and shooting the basket, <laughs> I'm kind of, and then Mancini like saying, I'm tired and walking away. <laughs> Murphy goes, We got a fast break. Fast break. Defense. Get back. Back, yeah. Come on, Banchini. Where the fuck you going at? And it's all clearly improvised, and it's all really, really funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just at the very end, he's like, "Hit me, Chief. Hit me, baby." And we and we the camera from McMurphy's perspective pushes in on the Chief's face without responding. And of course, during this whole thing, who is watching from the window? Yeah. But Nurse Ratchet, just observing. Just. Yep. It's it's so funny because we. We don't know what she's thinking, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you something else. You had said, like, is this a violation of Bansini's space? And, and of course it is. I mean, that's yeah. not, you don't just force a guy to carry you around on his shoulders without, that's fucked up. Right. There's a thing about this movie, which I think, and this is maybe what Nurse Ratchet misses or because of 
you know, her needs for control or whatever. But like when you're in a fucked situation, being taken out of your fuck situation, yeah. even with someone to some degree violating social norms to do it, maybe isn't so bad. I mean, Bansini's yeah. not going anywhere. He's got right. nothing in his life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, is Bansini maybe a little bit happier after having an experience that was slightly different? I don't know. Maybe. But like you said, he doesn't think. He just does. Yeah. And so in this moment, he just does. He 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 troubleshoots the moment. I'm, I'm, my goal is to get this guy to put the ball in the basket. All right, he's not listening to what I'm doing. And I think doesn't the, one of the um, guards call him out or one of the orderlies call him out? And he's like, I'm talking to myself, all right? It helps me. Kind of- yeah, 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 he does. And so when he when the chief doesn't do it, he kind of like um, is troubleshooting and gets on Bansini's shoulders without thinking, you know, without thinking uh, about what it might do to Bansini. He certainly thinks about like, can I use this situation to get the chief to put the ball in the basket, but not without thinking about Bansini. So, yeah. You, you know what I think is important? And I think maybe we should check in on this as we go along, which is that I don't think McMurphy is a altruistic figure who has come and is determined to help out all these people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that, I think he cares about them and cares about them to different degrees at different times in the movie. Yeah. But I think he's doing what he's doing mostly for McMurphy. Yeah. Right. The question is, is he having a beneficial effect on them? I don't know, right? You don't know. Is he or is he not? I don't know. I think there's no, and this is why I say, let's check in on this as we go. Mm-hmm. There are definitely times where there is no question that I think he does. Mm-hmm. You know, but does it end up that way? Yeah. I don't know. I can't quantify quantifiably say that in any of the situations in the movie. I really can't. I really can't. Because he's so selfish, I don't know. If it yields even indirectly a positive response, I don't know. Well, we'll get. We'll, we'll go along. Know, we'll we're gonna have that we'll conversation. Go along. Yeah. Uh, but then there's from the middle of trying to get the chief to shoot the basket. There is a hard cut, and it is medication time. <laughs> uh, McMurphy's playing poker with cigarettes, and there's just a really funny bit yeah. with Martini breaking a cigarette in half because the cigarette's worth a dime, and he wants to bet a nickel. <laughs> it's just really funny um and but again it's just like it's all kind of improvised arguments it's not like there's lines that are really important and the the music is just loud enough yeah to be irritating yes it is right even you as a viewer are sensing that as well yeah can you imagine every single day being forced to listen to and in the book i think it's like the same song Mm -hmm. all day that would make sense and the tension is going up and up and up until finally McMurphy gets up and says, Jesus you nuts want to play cards and you want to fucking jerk. Play the game. And he calmly walks across the room right into the nurse's station and he's looking at how to turn the music down. And then in walks the younger nurse, which is Nurse Pieball, I think. Yeah. And it is uh, Mi- Minnie uh, Sarkeesian. Okay. And what does she do the moment she sees McMurphy? She screams. Freaks screams. Out. Yeah. Yep. Stay back. Excuse me, ma'am. I just wanted to stay back. Huh? Patients aren't allowed in the nurse's station. And he's totally polite. I think he is trying to be like a normal person. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just trying to do the thing. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? That music is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy. Jack Nicholson does, and um, he's one of the best building anger actors, I think. 
because you can see him just like I'm yeah. trying to be calm about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to shout? And she goes in that calm voice. What you probably don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have. Your hand is staining my window. Ooh. Yeah, but like, again, he violates the convention, goes back there. Why? Selfishly, because he can't hear himself think. Um, Nurse Ratchet comes out calmly, escorts him out. Some of y'all think I'm on Nurse Ratchet's side, which is crazy. Calmly, <laughs> but he cuts in front of Harding. Why? Because he needs his needs addressed in that moment. Rather than waiting in line with everybody else who's gotten in line for the medication, he's going to cut in line, make a little, take a little shot at Harding, and then he's going to have the back and forth with Nurse Ratchet. Now, he's respectful, and I don't know how much of that is authentic or not. And when she says, you're staining my window, he wipes it down, he says he's sorry, down. takes the medication. But when we find out that he didn't take the pill and spits it in Harding's face, which we'll get to, um, that speaks volumes about his rebellion and how authentic he really was in, in apologizing to nurse ratchet and what have you. And look, I don't know if she's telling the truth or not about old people, not hearing the music. Certainly that's true. As you get older, you're hearing the clients, but I don't know how many of them actually care about the music. We don't really know. So, yeah. Well, I have a question for you that comes from patron Anthony Pomus. Oh, thank you. All right. And Anthony Pomus writes, is Nurse Mildred Ratched really trying to do what is best for the men in the psych ward? Or is she engaged perhaps in a form of warfare that results in the suicide of Billy? And is Billy's death actually a sacrifice upon the societal guilt author altar over which Nurse Ratched presides as sadistic priestess? I think we should save the second part of that question okay. for later on. But the first part, the first part is... Is she trying to do what's best for the men in the psych ward, or is she engaged in a form of warfare? At this point in the movie, I don't find her to be a sadistic person. I find her to be someone who is desirous of order. And she does not come down hard. She does not she doesn't raise her voice. She's not slamming tables. She's very clear about what the parameters are and dresses everybody with a certain level of respect. Of course, that tone starts to change as McMurphy threatens her power in the ward as the film goes along. But at this point, she's very clear about what the lines are. She doesn't freak out on McMurphy. who's come behind the nurse's station says, you're not allowed back here. Well, I've talked to you quite calmly about what your problems are. As soon as you step outside and we can have a back and forth. Stay within the system I've created. Do I think she's doing what's best for them? I don't think I feel that way at any point in the movie. I think she thinks this is what's best for them. But I also think that she has a um, enjoyment of the control that she has here. Because we never see Nurse Ratchet outside this ward. Right. That would be really curious to see what her life is outside of this ward to find out if maybe... She is, and I never saw this TV series that Sarah Paulson was in, so I don't know. I didn't either. Yeah. So, but it could be interesting to see because I don't find her as sadistic just yet at this point of the movie. So I, I definitely don't find her sadistic yet. Yeah. So first of all, uh, in the book, she's called the big nurse. 
Mm. Much more than you hear the words Nurse Ratchet. It's just a big nurse. And it sounds like she was a big person. Um, and when Milos started working on the project, mm-hmm. he really saw her as uh, evil. And, and, and by the way, I didn't mention some of the other people they went after because Louise Fletcher was not the first right. choice. The first choice was Anne Bancroft. Ooh, that would have been a nice choice. She turned it down. Uh-huh. Ellen Burstyn turned it down. I, th- I mean, literally, they're the same. Yeah. Uh, Geraldine Page. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then what's interesting, because we literally just talked about her, which is Angela Lansbury. Oh, oh, oh. oh man. That would have been fun. I think oh. all of these would have been good. And apparently they all turned them down, it seems like, because they really didn't want to play a villain. And this is, you know, middle of the women's movement, and they just didn't like this. And then what what made Milos Forman decide to go with Louise Fletcher, who also, by the way, it was like a year process mm. between when she first maybe auditioned. And, and you know this is that, and what people listening might not know, is what one of the other shitty things that gets done to actors is... Yeah is that the, the the studio or the movie is going after a big star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or three big stars or five big stars. But they also have to have other people come into auditions. So there are people that will come in to audition for Captain America. Right, right. When they're really going after a name, and they get called back over and over and over again just in case the name falls through. Yep. But really, we're not really considering you. One of the guys in the assistants, uh, the guy who played Bill, mm-hmm. he was called in for Captain America. He's called in for Thor because he's a big, tall, good-looking guy. Right. And so he kept getting called in for these superhero parts yeah. that he knew he would never get. <laughs> but because, you can't turn down the audition. No, because not you're sure. me. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like that's what happened to Louise Fletcher. And what it, what he realized is he said, maybe she doesn't know that she's evil and she's convinced herself that she's helping the patients. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's how it feels like to me. And and the thing is, she's part of an institution and an institution has rules. And sometimes you have to protect the institution, even if the rules don't always make sense. But she's an, she's a more active part of the institution, right? Yeah. Like the nurse who is her second, she's more just kind of, okay, got to do this, got to do that, got to do this, got to do that. Hers is a little more active, uh, uh, Nurse Ratchet, and you never see the doctor come out onto the floor of the ward to check in to see how she's doing, to check in to see the patients. Like you rarely see him uh, have any active right. So she clearly is the person controlling things here. Yeah. Um, in the book, by the way, the doctor is sitting in on all the ther- group therapy oh. sessions. Oh, well, great choice to remove him. Yeah. Great choice to remove him. Yeah, And, remove and him. Nurse Ratchet is uh, controlling him just as much as she's controlling everybody else. I see that makes her more evil. Yeah. But I can see that. Yeah. Mr. McMurphy, huh? your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. This is where it starts to take on allusions to power yeah. and structure and controlling and all of this. If they don't tell you what they're giving you, right? It's like... um. Snowpiercer, right? You didn't know what you were eating, and then you find out what it is, right? We just saw that in Andor. They're pumping out food for you to eat at, in that pipe or whatever, um, but I can't tell you what it is, but it gives you sustenance. right? And, uh, and so yeah, that's the way they control people is just to put them in a situation, have them rely on the thing they're giving them, and then 
um, beat back any questions about it. Yeah. Well, and I have two thoughts about this. One is, is that legally today, that's just, you just can't do that. Yeah, right. You have to be told what it is. But the second thing is, is clearly he wasn't given this pill yesterday. Right. Because he's asking about it today. So something in his behavior or in her observations of him made him go, we got to give him this pill. Yeah. And he sort of resists. And she says, if Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. And then he makes a real big show of taking that pill. And as you say later on, he shows that he, in fact, did not take the pill. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, though, by the way, in this scene that Harding is kind of pushing McMurphy. Like, well, why didn't you tell her to go fuck herself? Yeah. He, well, because, you know, he sees Murphy as a threat himself yep. for whatever control of the guys he has. And Murphy immediately shuts that down by spitting the pill in his face. I bet in one week I can put a bug so far up her ass you don't know whether to shit or wind or wristwatch. What do you say to that? You want to bet? No, you want to bet? One week. It's all I need. Who wants to bet? You want to bet? And it kind of goes around the room and a couple people take the bets. So this is the question I have, Steve, right here. Let me ask you. Why does he say that in this moment? Why does he want to do this to her? What's it about here? Is he, I mean, because the way he talks about women in this entire movie is, is with no sense of respect at all. So do you think that this is driven by the male ego? And this is 1963, as you said. Is this the male ego wanting to push back against a woman in power? Is this a guy who just rebels naturally? Um, or is this about showing off to the guys who has the power within the ward after what Harding just did to, to challenge it? So my basic answer is yes. <laughs> it's all those things. I, uh, my sense of McMurphy... D. All of the above <laughs> is, is that he always pushes back on power. Yeah. I, I don't think I, you know, it's like, I do think that there are definitely male, female things going on in sure. this movie. But I also think that if there was a, a jerk of a, a boss that was a guard at the penitentiary, he was at, he pushed back against that guy too. Yeah. Good I think McMurphy pushes back. Yeah. Yeah. Also in the book, after the first group therapy session, he kind of, calls harding and some of the guys on the way that she's controlling and belittling and henpecking i think is his term all of them and while harding as he does in this resists in the book finally i'll go yeah she's a fucking bitch basically they all all of the patients agree that they hate nurse ratchet interesting and so that which then leads to this bet is different from it in this moment yeah because in one, they're all on a team who hate Nurse Ratchet, but they're all afraid to stand up to her. Right. And in this, that that's not how you feel, you know. Yeah. So the situation's different. Let's go back to group therapy. Mr. McMurphy. <clears throat> Today, as you may or may not know, it doesn't matter, is the opening of the World Series. What I'd like to suggest is that we change the work detail tonight so that we can watch the ball game. You see the reaction kind of go around the room. Everyone kind of likes the idea. Well, Mr. McMurphy, what you're asking is that we change a very carefully worked out schedule. Here's an interesting thing Louise Fletcher said. Mm. She said she based her performance on, on the paternalistic way she saw white people treating black people in her native Alabama. Wow. Yeah, I could totally see that. That idea, that 
what she calls paternalism. Yeah, yeah. That is such a, it's, it exists within race structure. It yeah. totally exists within class structure, educational structure. It's like, oh, you think we should do this? You're not really thinking about all the other things. Right. You know, some men on the ward take a long, long time to get used to the schedule. Change it now and they might find it very disturbing. It's hard for me not to to read these lines and not read them in a condescending way. Well, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, the construct of it all lends itself to be read in that way. So, yeah. How would it be if we had a vote and let majority rule? Great. How confident do you think R.P. McMurphy is that he's going to win this vote at this moment? It feels like he's confident. Totally. I haven't had the conversations, everything, but she's the one that suggests the vote, which implies she knows what the result is going to be, you know? And if she represents the state, I'm sure Milo saw it in the same way, that the state recommending elections, sure. uh, democratic elections where no one runs opposed from the ruling party, uh, they can hide behind the lie that they, you know, they they offered them an option, you know? I, I, I think it's 100% what it is. Because remember, she has she knows what she has in her back pocket, right? which is that she knows that even if he wins a majority with this group, yeah. It's actually going to be the whole room, which is going to bring in when we get to the second vote. Right. Good point. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. no re. Yeah. Go ahead. Have a vote. Yeah. Um. And so I think he's supreme. Of course, all the guys will want to watch the World Series. Who doesn't want to watch the World Series? And I, it's funny. We just had the World Series recently. Yeah. And I, I looked it up is I think it got a, a 17 share or something like that in 2022. In 1968, which is the earliest statistics I could find. Yeah. It had a. 63 share mm-hmm. 63% of televisions were watching the world series. Like every, when you were a kid, everyone, everyone watched to listen to the world series. Yeah. 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 And he puts his hand up and looks around. Not a lot, a lot of hands. Cheswick does. Yeah. I well, love watching all the reactions. Like Harding kind of moves his hand, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the guys look at each other and, martini wants to he almost looks like he's crawling into himself because he can't <laughs> handle the pressure Tabor too is looking around and scared he's kind yeah. of scared of her yeah well because it's again how hard is it to stand up to the system yeah right we always did it this way and the thing is you need you need a group mm-hmm. standing up to your the system alone is real hard yeah if everyone does it not so bad what is this crap I mean, I, am, I watch the series. I watch. I haven't missed the series in years. Even in the cooler, when I'm in the cooler, they run it in there. They have a riot. What's the matter with you guys? Come on, be good Americans. Yeah, it's that thing, right? He's trying to tell them, like, let's get on the same page. Let's get together on this. And they're not. They're not ready to make the jump just yet. I think McMurphy is playing his hand too early. And it cuts to Nurse Ratchet, and her smug little smile <laughs> is amazing. Well, Mr. McMurphy, I only count three votes, and that's not enough to change ward policy. It's later on. It's at night. We're in the tub room, which becomes an important room later on. Yeah, yeah. And there's a game. Again, it's like the uh, the blackjack game we saw earlier. There's a game of Monopoly going on, and all the behaviors are funny. <laughs> and R.P. McMurphy is just kind of sitting in another room, mostly in the dark, looking real upset. Yeah, because he and didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get what he wanted. And, and as he's listening to the guys bicker and things escalate at the um, Monopoly table, and by the way, one of my favorite moments is when nobody's looking is that Martini picks up the die, a die and eats it. Yeah, <laughs> puts it in his mouth. Um, 
And then McMurphy grabs one of the hoses off this big, you know, spray table and sprays them all. Yeah. In particular, he sprays down Hardy. Damn lunatic. What you talking about? No. Well, then stay all wet, Harding, huh? Because I'm going downtown and watch the World Series anyway. And they're just looking at him like, what are you talking about? The bar downtown? Matt, Matt, Mac, you can't, 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 can't get out of here. Anybody want to bet? And then he looks down at this big, it's like the hydrotherapy console. And he looks down and he says, I'm going to take this fucking thing. I'm going to put it through the window. And me and my buddy Cheswick are going to go out through the hall, downtown, sit down in a bar, wet our whistles, and watch the ball game. Now, this is a big, looks like made out of marble thing. Yeah, yeah. That he's talking about lifting up. Does he think he can lift this up? I don't know. It's really fascinating. It's weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got thoughts on it after the scene is over, though. And that's the bet. Now, does anybody want any of it? You're going to lift that thing? Yeah. That's right. (laughs) I love Tabor's just sort of, I'll bet a buck. Yeah, I'll bet a buck. And then I love Martini, too, who had the whole argument about what a dime was. Goes, I bet a dime. <laughs> Anybody else want any of it? Hard on? I'll bet $25. And he goes over, and he tries to lift this thing. And by the way, from everything I heard and read, mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson really tried to lift this thing. <laughs> of course it is. The 70s. Yeah. He put every... And you watch him, like, his face yeah. is red, and he is straining. And I'm like... As an old man, I'm like, you know, pull something, man. You're gonna break. You're gonna get a hernia doing this. Stop. And he gets nowhere. Giving up? No, just warming up. He's off camera, and we hear these grunts and noises. We cut back to him, and he's straining and pushing. And this was they did multiple takes, and Jack was exhausted. Yeah, because he was putting everything he has into it. Sure. And one of the people watching, of course, is the chief. Yeah. And finally, he gives up, and he walks past them, right past the chief, turns to them and says, But I tried, didn't I? God damn it. At least I did that. It's a great scene layered with, or full of symbolism, right? Because the soaking them is his way of drowning out their anger. But him trying to pick that thing up, is once again showing it's it's in a it's feats of strength almost right he wants to show he's the alpha dog in the situation i'm going to pick this thing up this is so impossible everyone says it's impossible i'm going to do the impossible thing that you don't think is possible i'm going to call akaba i'm going to cross totally. the desert to akaba to show you it can be done right it's again it's that belief or some might call privilege whatever that belief nothing can i can do it no, you know but he can't but I love what he says here at the end. At least I tried. In a way, he symbolizes the one per, what it is like for one person to take on the system. As you said earlier, Steve, it's easier to do it when more people are with you to, when you take on the system than it is one. It feels overwhelming, impossible to move, heavy, um, tough, all of those things that are happening for him. So when he walks out, there's a lot of meaning in what he's when he says to him, at least I tried, because you guys are so unaware how you can change the system that you've just bought into it and you refuse to fight back. And I'm telling you, you can fight back, but you dopes don't realize this. And this, and, and that's what I think is working underneath what he's saying when he walks out uh, to them because they are blissfully playing their games and they think that's good enough of an existence. And he's trying to make them see 
that there's more out there and that they're being controlled. I I, I totally agree. I think it's a hugely symbolic scene. Mm-hmm. And I think, and one of them is too, is like, R.P. McMurphy raising his hand all by himself cannot actually get the World Series. Right, right, right. right. But if all of them raise their hand, they can get the World Series. Yeah. I bet if all of those guys tried to lift up this console, they could lift the thing up. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just can't do it on his own. Well, and the other thing, too, and this goes back to, like, what we were talking about with him on Bansini's shoulders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, often we think that the, the value of trying to do the thing is succeeding in doing the thing. Yeah. Right, right. But right. when the alternative is to do nothing. Yeah. Trying and failing is still better than nothing. Yes. It's an experience. Failing is an experience unto itself. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like life is failing. Life is trying things. Life is experiencing stuff. And I think the biggest thing with this group in group therapy, all of these people, they have given up on life. Right. They've given yeah. up. Yeah. Mac Murphy has not given up. Right. He wants to live and have fun. He want he is a pleasure seeker. That's one of the things about him. Yeah. He wants to laugh. He wants to enjoy things. He sees the pain of life as funny yeah. and interesting. And he is interested in stuff. And they are not. You know. There's a great line in Andor last week, the last week's episode, where Andor says to Andy Serkis' character, Kino Loy, I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. Yep. And that is essentially what you're seeing here, is him willing to fight the system, as we find out later, at the expense of his own, in essence, life, because uh, it's essentially a vegetative state by the end of the movie, um, rather than giving them what they want willingly, right? He's willing to take the consequence of the fight rather than not fighting and just accepting that kind of lot in life there's a symbolism in that you know it's funny I, for some, whatever reason my brain just went to the great speech and network of i'm mad mm-hmm. as hell and one of the things is you know you're all sitting there you're just like just giving my color tv and my radial tires yeah. and just leave me alone just let me have this and he goes but i'm not going to leave you alone <laughs> um is that we make our world smaller and smaller. And it's like, let me just control this little tiny bit of my world. And even though it's very unhappy, yeah, at least I don't have to take risk. I don't have to. And I think in this movie, their worlds have gotten so small. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, and, and it's so funny because it's weird when a thing moves you and you don't know entirely why it moved you, but him walking out saying, at least I tried, God damn it. I yeah. was really moved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and moved at them watching him. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is a low budget film. They don't, and and all movies are always under time constraints. Yeah, and directors are always having to figure out what do I sacrifice and when do I move on. And in this case, they were really running behind on this day, and and they had no more daylight. And after the first take of him walking off and saying, "I tried, goddammit," it," he said, "You know what? That's great. I've got it." Yeah. And Jack Nicholson was pissed. It's like, really? that's not good enough. We got to do this again until I say it's good enough. And they, he had an argument with Milos, and Milos said it's one of the best arguments ever. Because <laughs> what it meant was is that Jack was so passionate about that moment sure. that he wanted to fight for it. And that's what you want as a director. Right. And it, of course, it's this, it's the third take, is the one that's in the movie. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out, and this is just in terms of the book. Yeah. Is that the book's all told from Chief Brondon's perspective. Mm-hmm. And in his mind, he is a very small person. He is a very small, weak 
frail person. Interesting. Oh. And McMurphy walks in and he's this huge person. When McMurphy first shakes his hand, he said, my hand got lost in McMurphy's hand. It was so big and so strong. Hmm. And uh, chief, the chief's dad was a huge man who became a small man. And so this idea of being small or being big, and that is is a huge thing for Chief Bromden's journey. Right, right, right. Is that what McMurphy does is that he helps Chief Bromden become a big man again. <laughs> you know, and it's all in the movie. It's right. all totally, it's just not articulated the way it's articulated in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But watching him try to do this thing is a key, key moment in both the book and the movie for Chief Bromden. You know, yeah. obviously it's going to become big later on. Yeah. Yeah. So at this moment, I think it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. You can visit us on Facebook. You can go to Twitter and search for Cine underscore files or Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And of course, please subscribe to the show. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. There are a lot of other places you can leave reviews. So I think you can leave reviews on Spotify. You could leave if you listen on, on Audible, you can leave reviews there. We really, really do appreciate them. You can buy or stream One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest through cinephiles.net, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And we've talked a lot about our incredible supporters on Patreon today. They've contributed. They suggested this film. They contributed questions to this film. There's still time. If you sign up for Patreon right now, there might still be time for you to get your questions in for us to record part two of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And... We're almost done with uh, the entire uh, Star Trek, the original series on Enterprise Incidents. You can check that out. And you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. My own podcast. Uh, I'm sorry, my own uh, YouTube channel, the uh, YouTube.com slash John Roca Says, or just type in the Outlaw Nation. It should come up. Um, and my other podcast, the top 10. Uh, the Geek Buddies, and the Hot Mike uh, and Strong Style that are out there for y'all to, to enjoy. And after you're done checking all of those out, you can come back next week to finish One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest right here on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.